I love their draft animal periodicals. Of course. It's just, it is beautiful. Yeah, it's like a, a draft mule zine. Now I'm just picturing just five emo kids with black eyeliner, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. locked in an apartment at 3 a.m. pumping mm-hmm. out this draft mule zine. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we have Hannah Ehrenreich, a longtime friend, listener, first-time caller. Hannah has a long history with Farm to Tabor. She came up with the name Farm to Tabor, so you have her to thank for all of this. Sorry. (laughs) Tell us what you're doing nowadays. So we left Fayetteville, North Carolina, the home and origination point of Farm to Tabor, where we built a very small, very weird podcast closet for Sarah to start out in. At Revolutionary Coworking. Yeah, you had the and, co-working space. You guys, that was yeah. so nice. I don't think, you know, it was community. We're all for community. And I'm up in Syracuse, New York, which is where I'm from. And I am now working for an incredible inclusive preschool called Juonio, which was started by a bunch of hippies who was like, you know what? All kids deserve education. And we're going to do it the way that kids learn of all different ages, ability levels, and motor skills in a variety of ways, and they basically created inclusive education here. One of many, but the thing about hippies is that when they start something, they don't necessarily like copyright it or gatekeep it. So again, one of many originators, but it's a really cool place. And I'm convinced it's actually a blue zone. I think people live longer and are happier if they work at Juonio. That's great. I love to hear that. Yeah, I know. The adventure of kind of rebuilding your life after leaving Fayetteville is uh, always a storied one. So it's nice to see someone who managed to do that. (laughs) It's true. Well, and when I originally left Fayetteville, I ended up in community development, economic Mm -hmm. development and entrepreneurship support, which was a sweet spot from when Farm to Tabor started up. Mm -hmm. I would do that for a bunch of our friends walking through business plans and cash flow projections and other things that are super exciting. They're super fun. Everyone loves that stage Mm -hmm. of startup where you're broke and you kind of have a really great idea and nothing is written down, let Mm -hmm. alone calculated. It's my favorite. Yeah. We may follow up about that. But yeah, right now we're focusing on podcasts. So podcasts. Podcasts. Yeah. So what's going on right now is this is how I managed to cut things out of the book that just don't belong in there. But I'm like, but the people need to know. Or I'm just obsessed with this story, right? So it's like the book of the Maccabees. Yeah. Yeah. It should be here. (laughs) so today is a little bit different because this is kind of like some core information that's in the book which is a little bit of myth busting about u.s farm history and it's really important stuff and this i want to get out there just because it's important stuff even if people don't don't buy the book it's information that needs to get out there and if people hear this and they think wow that sounds really interesting number one you already have the gross outline of what happened and number two maybe you know which book to go to get the details and the citations and and where to read more i know that Over the course of our friendship, I have been jaw-droppingly stunned at what I understood to be the agricultural industry that I now understand to be the marketing behind the agricultural industry. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating in the sense that it's like a hidden history, but it's not history and it's not, it's just, it's not really hidden. It's out there and all the farmers of color and Asian farmers understand what it is. And yet this dynamic of what visuals are of the agriculture industry is just such a fake white narrative. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm excited for this for everybody else because I know that I have heard a couple of permutations of different parts of this story and shocked, just <laughs> absolutely gobsmacked. Thank you. Thank you. I think the first time we met, actually, we were at some post-election, like we didn't totally get our butts handed to us, Mixer, and that was the first time what, we what? met and I was like... Yes. Well, let me just call a victory party. I'm pretty sure. It was like super fun at parties that year. It was a good time for me personally. <laughs> I mean, you were like many of my friends from the Fayetteville experience. You were one of the first people to like tell me about, oh, yeah, I'm working on this hydroponics and space program. And I was just like, that is different from somebody trying to sell me an MLM. That's different. Yeah. My other friend who was my first real friend in Fayetteville was Reverend Elizabeth Ide. And I met her right after she got arrested on a Moral Monday protest. And she was the first person to just out loud say LGBTQ to me. And I was like, oh, you're my people. You're my people. This is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there is like a really cool little activist community here in Fayetteville. I don't want to be like, oh yeah, nothing good ever happens here. Oh no, no, we have have solid community. Like I'm the sadness of the last three years, Sarah, is that I haven't been able to come and visit and like my, I miss my community. It's great. We miss you too. It's not the same without you. Mm. No, I feel the same. I feel the same. Oh, you guys. Yeah, it's been rough. It's just been hard to get together with people in person the last couple of years in general, which has been kind of rough. But we're hanging in there, making it happen, doing the research, trying to get the word out. Quick note on the ISS space thing. So <laughs> mm. I got in touch with some folks like who work with the space program a little bit more. And uh, yeah, apparently the ISS is like notoriously difficult to work with. I would say difficult to work with, but it's just there's a lot going on there. So if you're not already like working in that group, it's uh, really hard to get folded in. But ISS, if you're listening, I'd love to do your food safety plans. <laughs> ISS, if you're listening, she can help you. She yeah. can help you. You should call her. I already do all the weird hydroponics. Microgravity, it's just it's just one more weird thing. It's just throw it on the pile. It's fine. Dr. Sarah Tabor, you can reach her at the Farm to Tabor podcast link. You can just connect through there. Beautiful. Thanks for that, dear. You're welcome. <laughs> NASA, if you're listening. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Houston, Houston, can you come in here? <laughs> right. So here in the science community, we believe in doing our homework. <laughs> Such a difference from economic development. Yeah, I tell you what. So that it's going to be a little bit of a story that we tell today about economic development and and uh, getting doing some fact checking, right? So it, the genesis of all of this is my husband and I were both in graduate school and doing postdocs around the same time. Great friend of the pod, Rob, mm, my husband, yep. good guy, yeah. <laughs> So I'm doing a doctorate and eventually a postdoc in crop science and plant breeding and working on UF's research farm, which at the time was crewed partly by permanent full-time staff, like very small skeleton crew, uh, postdocs and grad students, and inmates from the local prison system. As as you would in the United States of incarceration. Yeah. So we've got some jailhouse slavery going on. And I was like the only person on the crew, at least in my lab, who seemed to have a problem with it because it was really sold as a jobs program. It's like, oh, they'll, the inmates will like get some marketable skills. And I was like, well, who's going to hire them? Because all the manual labor jobs on this farm are taken by inmates. That's mm-hmm. kind of the point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Do we know anyone who's actually graduated from this program and gotten a job in agriculture? Anyone? Anyone? Raise your hand. No. That was not the point of the program. That is um, not the point of the program. Yeah. No, it, it really wasn't. Uh, Florida, you know, and mm-hmm. there's just some things you can't unsee. So yep. that was 
that was not my first experience with horrible labor conditions in agriculture, but it was the first time I really started seeing kind of the the background and the history there. And it made me really curious. And the more I worked in agriculture, the more curious I got. And I started digging in and that kind of became the genesis of the book. And I just found out some stuff that was like, wow, the conventional narrative of family farms and just how American agriculture unfolded is just not true in any way whatsoever. So that's the shocking part. It's literally a fabrication. It's mm-hmm. a marketing effort. It's mm-hmm. it's quite literally a narrative crafted by people who want to sell you something, but more, they want to sell the political structure something, and they're going to yeah. get something in exchange for this narrative. Yes. See, this is why I had you for this this episode, Hannah. I knew you would get it. <laughs> Like when I, a lot now, of, now that yeah. I can hear every word that's coming out of your mouth, unlike the mountains of Asheville, we are in sync. <laughs> so we'll back up a little bit, right? So we have this kind of conventional story that we see in The Little House on the Prairie, Michael Pollan books, you know, Wendell Berry, like all of these writers of everything used to be these small family farms. And it was great until agribusiness just came out of nowhere and swallowed it all up and forced people to behave in a certain way that is that's why agriculture is bad now. It's because of this modern evil techno agribusiness. I feel like if you know anything about American history, though, like a lot of horrible things have been happening for our country's history and agriculture was deeply, deeply involved in all of it. I mean, those small family farms existed where they existed for a yeah. very specific social, political and economic purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know when this is going to launch, but just, you know, in the interest of the Thanksgiving tie in to the recording date here. Yeah. We are on stolen land. Uh-huh. All of us. Yeah. There we have it. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, too, when I say things like, oh, you know, agricultural history has some really gross stuff in it. And people say, oh, yeah, slavery, of course. And I'm like, yes. And, you know, it was not abolished in the North nearly as early as people think. There was still slavery going on in New York and Pennsylvania into the 1830s and 1840s because mm-hmm. of all these grandfather clauses. So they passed these laws, quote unquote, abolishing slavery decades earlier than that. But it actually kept going until pretty close to the Civil War. So the dates of abolition in the North and South were not actually as different as people think. Mm -hmm. You know, like the Salem witch trials happened because all these Puritans, pilgrims or whatever, were just like enthusiastic enslavers. So they had nothing to do but sit around and gossip about their neighbors and who was like flirting with the devil that day. And that's why they had time to get into this panic about who's a witch. Well, and not to drag this into, again, the realm of the personal, but so your family has come to our Passover Seder, Mm -hmm. where part of our narrative is... Why would Pharaoh choose to free his entire exploitable labor labor force just like that? He wouldn't. Nobody would. Why Mm -hmm. would you do that? I mean, literally, they're exploitable and they're free labor. What? No. Yes, you keep them because it's good for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) it wasn't as voluntary and and nearly as fast as like maybe part of the American narrative would have us believe. So really quick, let's start tying this back into like, okay, the food story specifically. So there's when we have this narrative of it all used to be like nice, good, small family farms, and now it's different because of techno agribusiness, right? There's kind of three pillars that hold that whole story up. Number one, cons- farmers are good and farmers are victims of all, of all of this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. That first pillar is farmers are good, farmers are the victims, they're not at fault for all of this, right? Second pillar, consumers are at fault. Consumers are the reason that agribusiness thrives, right? It's because of our preference for cheap convenience food. Agribusiness is just shot in there on the backs of consumers and forces farmers to do things a certain way, right? So that's the second pillar. First pillar, farmers are innocent, they're good people. Second pillar, consumers are the the perpetrators and we're bad people. And then kind of a third one is 
everyone's unhealthy because of bad diet, because of consumers' poor choices in, in terms of food, right? We have kind of like this narrative that's going on. It has certain morals. It's not just a narrative that sounds nice. There are very specific morals that come out of it. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Public health problems are certain people's fault for not choosing to eat properly. These are very specific. It's not just a false story that sounds good. There's also very specific political objectives behind this story, right? Right. So I'd like to point out that not only are these, not only is this narrative false, and not only are the political objectives behind this narrative kind of obvious, they're not just bad ideas. They're also old bad ideas. A lot of the ideas that we're kind of framing this narrative on, like consumers are bad people, farmers are good people, are very, very old in the U.S., you know, dating back four centuries. So this is not strictly a post-World War II agribusiness problem. This has been part of American culture to frame farmers as good, virtuous people and urban consumers as bad people. This has been our culture for 400 years. None of this stuff is new. And it's had a huge impact on how U.S. history has unfolded because of who we're deciding to have be the heroes in the American story and who we're deciding to have the villains. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's also fascinating because the narrative ties into so, so much else, right? Like low prices are the heavy artillery of capitalism. But if people make bad nutritional choices, then how they handle drug use or being incarcerated, like all those things are tied together in terms of an urban American experience, specifically experience of people of color in, in ghettoized communities. Mm -hmm. um, and also, right, the heroism of the American farmer by providing this food system that has to be nutritious, that has to be reliant on unpaid domestic labor, labor in a lot of ways, which ties to a gender dynamic that we don't talk about in our culture. And a lot of it is also about how we don't have social support structures that allow people the time and the energy to focus on independent, self-sustaining food systems. There are a lot of thoughts floating around in there. I hope that that was clear. <laughs> it just, it seems like there's a lot about, you know, what is the American experience of agriculture? And it has to do with this rugged Marlboro man, self-reliance concept that doesn't tie to, well, where do people get food? How do they get food? And what is what goes into the making of that food? Because we ignore a lot of the things that really developed in our actual agricultural system, because that's not part of the narrative. It's mm -hmm. like part of the hidden side. Yeah. And if people are eating cheap convenience food, is it because they're lazy? Or is it because maybe they're working two or three jobs and have no transportation? And during that time when you're supposed to be cooking from scratch, if you're trying to bust yourselves out of poverty, that's when you need to be helping your kids with their homework. There's only so many hours in a day. So is it really a better use of your time to like cook from scratch or make sure your kids don't fail school so the next generation can have a better start? That's actually a choice that I would say most people in the United States have to make. And that's not something that like those lazy, dumb poors aren't eating right. You know, uh, discourse really takes into account. I just also say that I read an article about the American chestnut tree mm -hmm. and the experience of rural and semi-urban communities that were able to rely on chestnuts for a large portion of, of protein. And it was free. It was literally, or at least once the tree was planted, it was free. It was a source of reoccurring protein that people could harvest themselves. And well, I just not a quick asterisk, like chestnuts are mostly carbs, protein, eh, not so much, but like, yeah, for like, a staple carb, it was like a staple carb for much of the Eastern US. Yeah. Right. So, it, but it helped with the nutritional balance for low income or working class communities. And when the chestnut 
and again, other species of edibles were somewhat eradicated by either disease or design from residential systems, that made the populations much more food insecure and easier to exploit on labor. Mm -hmm. And when you start talking like that, people look at you like you are nut job, like absolutely. (laughs) It's like a persecution fantasy. And all these are strategic. These are all strategic decisions based on socioeconomic and power dynamics. And they're very real. Yeah. Again, my family kind of dating back, you know, on this one side of the family to Harlan County, Kentucky, where for those who don't know, there were some coal wars there, meaning workers went on strike. And it got to the point where uh, the coal mine owners freaked out uh, because they're unionizing. And they said, National Guard, we need you to come here and force these people back into the mines at gunpoint. That would be super thanks. (laughs) There were some some low grade civil wars going on during the depression at that time over this. That there were. And that's about when the chestnut trees were starting to go extinct. And so this was a time, you know, extinct in the wild. This was a time when people were losing their source of food. And so one of the only ways they had to support themselves was go to work in the mines. That's something we see a lot is food kind of used as this bargaining chip. You know, if people can't feed themselves, if their food system has collapsed, then the only option they have, you know. To not exploitative die. Exploitative labor systems. Yeah, is, you know, exploitative labor, but also like give us your natural resources that we want. And so the natural resources of Appalachia with the loss of that chestnut tree resource, that was really the only option people had to feed themselves, not just give up their natural resources. And oh, by the way, we're going to make you dig it out. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a thing that happens over and over again all over the world. And that's what happened in the United States. I mean, Appalachia is gorgeous, right? Like it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's cloud forest. If it were any other country, you know, we would call it cloud forest. This is an amazing environment. It's the center of biological diversity for so much of the eastern United States. It's beautiful. Like there was just there's a concerted human choice that this place is like, we're just going to treat it like shit. Right. Um, and it's so fascinating to me. Um, it's just it, it definitely feels like a choice. Um, we're going a little far afield now. Uh, Sorry. Did you, did you <laughs> okay. meet Dr. Sarah Bosano? Who, one more time? Dr. Sarah Taylor Bossano. She was actually in a Fayetteville group. I don't think directly connected to. I know the uh, name. And I'm. Yeah. Her work as a literary scholar is focused on the history of Appalachia and the Mm -hmm. construction of this Appalachian identity, which Mm -hmm. was meant to, again, deride and degrade the population and feed into the coal boss narrative of civilizing and benefiting the region through these really brutal desecrations of community mm-hmm. anyway yeah, it's, it's kind of weird because i feel like a lot of folks who like have an appalachian family background and jd vance really kind of trade on it they're like this is why i'm authentic and why you should listen to me and it's like it, you know it was one side of the family and i didn't even know like i knew we kind of came from coal mining people but i didn't know it was like that coal mining people you know because his family just didn't talk about it it was so so bad that they just left and like didn't look back and so There's it's weird to me, huh? There's trauma for you. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's why grandma's like crazy, crazy. Okay. That explains a lot. Yeah. And so it's it's weird to me to kind of go like, oh, you know, I'm from coal mining country. And so that's why we know stuff. Like, not really. We kind of severed that connection very, very conscientiously. Right. So like, I don't want to do the whole thing of like, oh yeah, I'm a hillbilly and I can speak for the hills. That's just not the case. I've worked in a lot of the rural US. I've worked in agriculture. We definitely come from a family background that's like, familiar with working class trauma so that's that's kind of where i'm coming from on it. it it feels weird to me when people kind of traffic on that like i'm appalachian identity especially if they're not actively living and working there 
Right. The other part of the Appalachian, Appalachian, Appalachian identity that I think is really fascinating has been the resurgence of real great community development and food culture mm-hmm. um, over the last 30 years. And I think you've experienced some of that most recently. Yeah. But I, the West Virginia experience is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, talk I've... about a place that really is on the hit list for all sorts of mines and resource exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because they keep talking about like, oh, it's not good for agriculture up there. I'm like, ah, it's not good for plantation agriculture. It's not good for cotton, tobacco and rice. It's great for forestry, orchards, dairy, mm-hmm. vegetables, because it's higher up in the mountains and it's cool. You can grow things up there like cherries and cabbage during times of year or just that you can never grow them out closer mm-hmm. to the coast. So it's a really good opportunity to do a regional food system that's very diversified because you have like subtropical and tropical lowlands right next to these like cooler mountains. That's a lot of what makes like Chile such an amazing agricultural export region. We have a lot of opportunities to have a regional food system here that we're just not executing on because we're so used to thinking of Appalachia. Oh, that horrible, that horrible place. place where we have to blow up mountains in order to get their resources out. We're just going to blow the tops off. Let's go. Right. Yeah. And when we talk about the place, it's like poverty porn of like, oh, this place is just desecrated and that's all it ever can be. And like, oh, that desecrated place. Like, we're not going to worry about like what could go right or try to pursue that. Right. <laughs> I don't know. We're a little far afield. Um... Sorry. Let's bring, us, <laughs> let's bring us back. No, it's okay. I'm just like, man, I have a lot of thoughts to get off my chest on that. So Keep we did. Going. Boom. All right. So when we're talking about U.S. agricultural history. Again, we have this kind of story of it used to be good. It was all small family farms for hundreds of years. And then something happened and now agribusiness is in charge and it's making us all behave badly, right? Except for consumers, we're the ones making agribusiness behave badly. So we're the ones enabling it. We're enabling the abuse of a beautiful, nostalgic agricultural system. That's right. Yeah. So that's the narrative. And now we're going to talk about why everything about it is wrong. Wrong. (laughs) <laughs> take us just wrong just wrong we're gonna take a little all right so i have this underlined in my notes here it's titled a history of excuses so that's where we're going with this all right so we're gonna start with this this idea that used to be like all just small nice family farms let's go back to the 16 1700s we're gonna go to the u.s like the northern half of the u.s you know northeastern quadrant kind of from the coast going on in as colonization proceeded from the coast inland, you heard of the Whiskey Rebellion? Uh, yes. The one where the veterans of the Revolutionary War were like, we don't want to be taxed on this. And then I think they that was Shay's Rebellion. That's Shay's Rebellion. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't think I remember the Whiskey Rebellion. Sorry, dude. Okay. So there was booze. Um... Mm. <laughs> Excellent. So the whis- yeah, the Whiskey Rebellion, 1791. So the version that I learned in high school and then like forgot and then like had to kind of dig back up later as I was trying to make sense of agricultural history was, okay, so we've got some farmers out in like the frontiers, you know, the borderlands with indigenous peoples because we just stole them. And so we've we've pushed the border back further, right? So out on the western edge, which at that time was like Pennsylvania, out on the western edge of the U.S., we had these frontier farmers who were dependent on whiskey as an export to, to make their living. Makes sense, right? Value-added products, all that jazz, popular with the peoples. There we go. Yeah. And the U.S. at that time was thinking, man, we have to repay some debts from the Revolutionary War. We've got to tax something. How about this one thing that everybody's trading in? Booze, right? Logical. Uh, Farmers out on the Western borders 
took this personally, you know, because they kind of, the way the tax was structured, they said this is disadvantageous to us compared to the big distillers on the coast. This isn't fair, blah, blah, blah. We're going to shoot some people about it. Mm. So I want to dig a little bit deeper. Why do we have all these farmers out on the Western borders who are this dependent on booze as an export? If everybody's small family farms farming sustainably, then why do they have so much corn that the only way to move it is distill it into booze? I mean, value-added products are great, but there's a lot of value-added things you can do with corn. You can just sell it as is. Mm -hmm. You can feed it to pigs, salt the pork, move it overland. You can feed beef cattle and, you know, march those over the, over the Alleghenies, sell them to markets. There's all kinds of things you can do with corn, right? Yep. So what's the deal with the booze? What's going on here? This is what I started to ask myself. <laughs> Got to have a lot of excess corn production if you want to make liquor out of it. Totally legit. Yeah. So I started digging and I'm like, if we have this countryside that's full of self-sufficient family farmers, then why are they economically dependent on this one cash crop? You can't be self-sufficient and that dependent on a cash crop. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense, right? So if you really have a bunch of people who are rushing west to Homestead to self-sufficient farm, you're not going to have this much whiskey exports that it's a nationally destabilizing force. It just doesn't make any sense. So I did a little digging. So 1791 is right after the Haitian Revolution. Okay. And, yeah, so this is how I cheated by marrying a historian of the Haitian Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> it really clears things, some things up. So it turns out the U.S.'s number one trading partner at the time was not Britain. It was Haiti, which oh. was still a French colony at the time. Big sugar depot, lots of slave plantations that were pumping out sugar. It was the wealthiest colony at this time was Haiti. That's not the reputation it has now, right? But the French had a really great system for pulling sugar out of that place, making tons of money off of it, right? So that's the United States' number one trading partner. So, like, again, like, if you go back to elementary school, high school history, you kind of learn about the triangle trade, right? So you have, like, manufactured goods coming from England, going down to West Africa, selling them, like, guns and fabric in exchange for kidnapped people, taking them west to the Americas, and then back to England. Uh, exports, right? Yeah. Back so it's kind of set as this three-piece trade and, like, all of the Americas is one corner of it. And it's actually a bit more complicated, believe it or not. There is a huge amount of trade between the United States, especially the northern United States, and the Caribbean, specifically Haiti. Right? So it was actually more like a square trade. <laughs> I'm shocked that there's more to this than they taught us in high school. Continue. I know. Believe it or not, right? <laughs> so the United States is exporting. So the nature of this trade, right, is like sugar, molasses, rum, and all these other like sugar plantation byproducts are coming from Haiti into the U.S., the United States is selling food, mostly, but also timber, right? Mm. So colonizing Haiti, they already cut down all the trees to replace them with sugar, right? So if they right. want to build anything, they have no trees to cut down and make timber themselves. So most of the U.S.'s timber exports were going to Haiti and Jamaica and other sugar slave camps, other like sugar slavery islands. A lot of the fisheries in the U.S. and Canada were being caught, pulled onto shore, dried and salted and sold down to the Caribbean, you know, places like Jamaica, Barbados, Haiti to feed enslaved people. Cause it was like cheap shelf stable protein. Right. Right. So already we have a huge market for cheap processed foods just as part of the DNA of like colonial experience. Right. Salt pork from the Northern United States. Same thing. You know, a lot of these farmers out West were growing all that corn to make salt pork ship it down the rivers, ship it across the mountains, and then send to Haiti and other slave colonies. Same thing with beef. 
and wheat. So salt pork and fish were for enslaved people. You know, those were cheap rations and also like corn in bulk. However, all the people who own those plantations, the fancy rich people, were like forcing all these people to work for them, wanted fresh beef because you could herd beef over the mountains, herd them onto a ship, take them down to Haiti, slaughter them on site for fresh meat. And then also wheat to make like fine wheat flour. So all these quote unquote self-sufficient farms all along the U.S. eastern seaboard and all these like quote unquote little self-sustaining fishing communities and uh, logging camps, none of them were self-sufficient. They were all cash crop export depots for Haiti. And to a lesser extent, other Caribbean sugar islands. So when Haiti throws a revolution and says, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. One of the things they did was the enslaved people who were working the plantations knew how to grow their own food. They were growing manioc, bananas, plantains, all those other things. They knew how to grow their own food. Now that they were no longer being forced to work on sugar plantations, they were dedicating more time to that. So the food export market to Haiti just collapses. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... That's why all these Western farmers were so dependent on booze all of a sudden. It's because their export market to slavery collapsed with the Haitian Revolution, I think is what happened. Bam, chicka, bam, bam. So what happens when your main trading partner just disappears, right? Mm -hmm. You've been placed on the frontier of Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and basically left to rot, right? You have to come up with your own new market. Nobody was forced to go out there. So I think a lot of what happened was like, it was folks who were like, I want to get on the property ladder. That's why we need to like go genocide some indigenous people so we can take their land because I want to get on the property ladder. And once you're out there, just like today and like for the last 5,000 years, the easiest way to monetize a remote property is grow grain, right? Because it's so fungible. There's so many things you can do with it. You can use it as is on site. You can ship it. You can turn it into booze. You can turn it into meat. If you have grain, you're never going to be like, oh no, nobody can use it. Someone's going to be able to use it for something, right? So it's like the dead-ass easiest way to monetize a remote property. So I think that's what happened is as the U.S. expanded West, it was not for homesteading. It was for large-scale food exports. And it was to make cheap, processed bulk rations for enslaved and, you know, import people. So when we have this idea that like everything used to be self-sufficient and the food system used to be good and nobody ate cheap bulk convenience food, I'm like, you know nothing about American history. (laughs) (laughs) cheap disgusting bulk rations for very poor and exploited people and huge markets built to create those cheap bulk rations are inextricably linked yeah they are the most american food system that is how it's always been here you know and you can kind of turn yourself in circles and go like oh well but the corn wasn't that process back then i'm like it's still cheap bulk rations okay don't kid yourself this was not a functional food system by independent small farmers for independent small farmers that is never how it has worked here So, yeah, like from the beginning of U.S. agriculture, it has always been like this. And so the idea that it used to be all sustainable small farms is just it's just PR. That has never been how we did it. As people were acquiring land out west, again, Little House on the Prairie, I think, gave us a little false example because it's written by a child who had no idea how real estate deals worked at the time. (laughs) That's true. She's just like, and then we moved. I think sometimes she betrays some awareness that they're squatting on other people's land. Which means that she didn't have any exposure to how people normally did it, which was when you got in homestead, that's a real estate purchase. Homesteading was, for the most part, it was not people kind of like boldly going into the unknown. It was a real estate deal. Nowadays, when you buy a home or like a rural property, it's because you have a nest egg and you have a little bit of ability to step back from the daily wage grind. That is also how it was in the 1700s. (laughs) Intergenerational wealth systems haven't changed substantively Mm -mm. from the 1700s to present. You know, 
Yeah. And when we talk about breadlining and why that is continuing to be a huge part of inequity in a lot of different types of communities, but specifically urban areas, that is one of the huge things is that if you couldn't afford to own property, if you couldn't afford to own land or a house and pass that along to your generations that succeeded you, your family was always going to be poor and might always be poor. Mm -hmm. That is a huge loss of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yep. And kind of tying into that. So there are a few different approaches to agriculture we've alluded to with Little House in the Prairie versus how everyone else did it, right? So pretty early on, you had a few different approaches to farming settle out. So one of them is like, I'm a gentleman, you know, I own a tavern, you know, I have a trading company, I trade furs, blah, 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 something in a port town. I'm a lawyer, whatever. And I'm going to buy a little rural property because that's how you, again, get on that property ladder, which is kind of the American dream wealth business model, right? There's a reason the American dream is like work until you can buy a house and then you're secure. Like that is just our economy is grind for a wage until you can afford property, buy some property, and then that's how you actually build wealth. It's very difficult to actually make money working. (laughs) That's just not how it's done. The family doesn't have an emerald mine. You know, what's the person to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? We have pretty early on you know, in the Northern United States, the South had its own thing going on in the Northern United States, kind of like the homeland of what we think of as sustainable small family farming. We already have some stratification very early on. 16, 1700s already, we're seeing it, where you have gentlemen farmers and you have Mm. like subsistence farmers, right? And people get really upset when you say things like gentlemen farmers and like uh, hobby farmers and things like that. But it's a real designation. You can look at where people's money is coming from and figure out which one they are. It's not a it's not an aesthetic judgment. It is an item of fact, right? I just I'm thinking about like aesthetic judgments on on hobby farmers, like somebody in, you know, a very nice overall type set with multi pockets and a gentleman farmer who obviously is wearing a waistcoat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that mm-hmm. would be the Pinterest version of this conversation. Sorry, continue. Yeah. On. <laughs> quick digression when i when we lived in florida i worked in the veterinary hospital there for a while and we had a non-zero number this is in 2007 so like right before the real estate crash we had a non-zero number of patients who were alpacas uh, okay in florida interesting yeah and they were very very sick because they're wool-bearing animals from the andes where it's like yeah. high dry and cold and they're living yeah. in a swamp where it's hot muggy and wet they had a lot of parasite problems because up in the andes uh the way, if you're a ruminant, the way you get parasites is you eat off the ground and, you know, like things poop on the ground, larvae kind of like swim out of that or whatever, get on the grass, critters eat it, gets back in your intestines. Now you're parasitized, right? So in the Andes, larvae don't last very long. It's high, dry, and cold. There's no protection from the UV radiation, blah, blah, blah. Down in the swamp, they love it. There's larvae everywhere. And so you have alpacas eating, like just constantly getting dose of parasite larvae. And they haven't, their immune system is not equipped to deal with it. Mm. So they're getting horribly sick. We had one of the guys in the necropsy room go, oh, yeah, I cut this thing in half. It was white on the inside. There ain't no blood left. Uh, <laughs> oh, like, you should see my face right now. Oh, horror. Just horror. Yeah. So like veterinary chronicles, the Chicago yeah. Hope version. Yeah. And I would tell people this story and they'd say, how is this possible? And I mean, what do you, how do you, what do you mean? How is this possible? And they'd say, how are people allowed to do this? And I was like, you've heard the phrase independent small family farmer, right? The whole point is no one can tell you what not to do. <laughs> like, that's literally the point. <laughs> it's like, you can fuck up as much as you want. It's your problem. And yeah, so that's to me, hobby farmers. We had a bunch of folks who just, I think they said, I want to retire in Florida. 
And when I'm retired, I want to raise alpacas. And they never thought about whether those goals were compatible. And <laughs> sometimes that's how hobby farming do. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, that was a digression. Anyway, so taking it back to like, yeah, God bless them. They don't deserve this, but sometimes that's what people do with them. So to take it back to the point. So we have gentlemen farmers, you know, like I'm a port town merchant. I own a tavern. You know, I'm a lawyer or something like that. I'm going to buy a property because that's what we do in America. Yep. And they would have a cash flow that they could invest into making the farm look nice. And that was kind of a thing that they also did as a form of, I don't want to say conspicuous consumption, but it kind of was. You can take people out to your estate, go like, look how invested in the community I am. I'm reinvesting in the earth. I stole all this land from indigenous people, and now I've plowed it into a nice flat field. There's stone walls, and there's sheep, and I'm just like such a good guy. That's gentleman farming. Yep. Well, and it is. It's a class status. You are definitely demonstrating wealth through this acquisition. Mm -hmm. It is not something that poor and working class people could do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there was a saying that the more that the poorer farmer was, the more often his family moved. So yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have this kind of growing class system in agriculture very early on. I'm talking like 1600s. So you have farmers who are like wealthier and they have an outside cash stream that they're spending on their farm, right? Making it look like a little version of England erasing all traces of indigenous presence, just kind of recreating a little Europe back there. And they never needed to move because like they didn't have to make money farming really. So they could spend all these resources they're getting from the outside from liquidating natural resources, you know, like they were selling timber, selling furs, and they're kind of reinvesting in this one tiny little plot as they're sacking the continent. So they can point at that and say, what a good guy I am. And they were permanent. They never had to move. They're kind of like situated in their port town that they're funneling all these resources through. And so they really kind of got into the sense of like, we're fostering permanence. We're fostering a sense of place. Well, I and, also just want to put like, we are also the new elites. Like we're the new mm-hmm. gentry. This is mm-hmm. this is a replication of mm-hmm. a very broken class system mm-hmm. that we imported from mm-hmm. Mother Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's kind of this idea that like we went to the United States like as immigrants from Europe to get away from this horrible class system and the lack of freedom. Like we sure did do as much as we could exactly the same <laughs> for an escape. Right. So that's kind of your upper class farmers, Whig farmers, you know, uh, W.H.I.G., uh, your port town merchants who tended to have certain political leanings, certain political interests. They wanted to keep wages down. And so this class of farmers actually was opposed to homesteading. Because their model of how land should be colonized was, you know, port town merchants like me acquire a big tract of timber. We cut down all the trees. We sell the timber. We burn the slash and everything that's left over. You can gather the ashes and sell it as fertilizer back to England. And that alone will cover the cost of cutting down all those trees. So it's an orderly process of sacking the joint. And then once all the trees and the ashes have been cleared, then you have all this empty land. And you can cut it up into tiny little pieces and sell it to, like... More gentlemen farmers. That was their version of how colonization should proceed, right? And so if you have squatters like the Ingalls's and Little House on the Prairie going out ahead of where these folks could reach and ahead of where they're cutting the timber, they cut the trees down themselves. They use the trees themselves. When they did slash and burn, they kept the ashes on that land and grew things with it. The upper class farmers felt like these people were a force that they just couldn't control and they were very frustrated about it. And so that's why The U.S. really didn't get any homesteading laws in place until very late in the game, like 1862 for the Great Plains, a little bit earlier with Florida and Oregon. So we kind of have this national mythology that always used to be little homesteading. And I'm like, actually, the people running the country hated homesteading. That's why it took so long to make it a law. 
So that I think that's a really important thing to understand about early farming is it was not like plucky independent homesteaders at all. It was a standard real estate development scheme. They'd acquire big tracks, sack all the natural resources, and then flip the properties. Like it was a very standard real estate scheme. So if you're going out to start your own small farm, you're not leaving civilization. You're actually step two or three in a real estate hustle that was very standardized, <laughs> which is wild to me. Sense. That's how all these farmers wound up out there on this Western border. It wasn't plucky homesteaders. It was like gentry. <laughs> it was gentry for the most part selling exports. And like, yeah, there were some ragtag farmers in there, but like, it's kind of like now when you have gentry who are pissed off and you have like subsistence wage workers and like uh just subsistence level folks pissed off which ones do you think you're actually going to hear from so that's a fun I can't little imagine you are suggesting that money buys influence what i don't know man i don't know <laughs> <laughs> what a weird thought yeah I mean, what a weird thought all yeah. of us being equal under the law and all mm -hmm. yeah so speaking of equal under the law let's talk about the birth of sharecropping Believe it or not, did not start off in the South. The South adopted it from the North after the abolition of most slavery, other than jailhouse slavery, hmm. after the Civil War, because they're like, well, we need some way to run our plantations. Oh, I know. The folks up North have already perfected this one. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. So the sharecropping and association with the South is just kind of like legacy sharecropping. It's the longer version. Something like that. Yeah. So like... If you're a gentleman farmer up north and you've got all these like gross homesteader types that you're trying to control. So one way you can do that, if you just hired people to work on your farm for a wage, then you might have to pay a living wage. There's a risk of that happening. And that was actually one of the reasons they were also trying to stop homesteading was they're like, if we can just contain people here, it'll drive wages down. If people can leave, then there will be fewer people here and it'll drive wages up. So that was another reason they were trying to stop homesteading. The gentleman farmers were. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well, because, like, if you're going to have, like, a sustainable farm with the stone barns and the stone walls and, that, like, you're shoveling manure carefully and spreading it all over, that's all very labor-intensive. So you need workers to come do that for you, but you can't pay them. That would be crazy. So you really, really want wages to go down. So we have an early sustainable farming movement that was, like, if you look at how people were talking about it, it was definitely cover for, let's just keep wages down. So, yeah. If you look at organic farmers today, kind of like waxing rhapsodic about like the virtues of manure, that's actually tapping into like a hundreds of years old tradition of using like, because manure is very labor intensive to haul around, especially for how much nutrients it contains. As a science tech person, I'm like, yeah, we should use manure as fertilizer. That's a good thing. We have a lot better equipment to move it around than we did back in the day. Back in the day, all this poetic talk about manure was a safe way to talk about how important it was to keep wages down. So you could afford to have people move that manure around. I mean, like that's that kind of gets lost in the discourse when we talk about traditional farming and how wise they were back then. It was just hot talk for keeping wages down. Okay. What we really have to keep in mind is that this is all an economic system. Mm -hmm. And when when the economics are balanced, balanced in quotation marks, you have the ability to move people or keep people the ability to pay for things to happen or pay for them to not happen. And you have something that a farmer either is getting as cash flow that is derived from the farm or derived from other sources. These things are all inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Economics existed before World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not. And, and was a primary motivator of social systems. Mm -hmm. That's the other part of it that seems to be missed. Mm -hmm. That farming in and of itself is not a structure that exists outside of economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another thing I love about this is 
a lot of the reason that people were so eager to move west was to escape this pressure on downward wages in more established areas, right? Because you have all these rich folks who already have farms who are just trying to keep wages low. If that had not been the case, if people in developed areas who own businesses had been more willing to pay appropriate living wages, there would not have been as much reason for people to run west. There would have been far less pressure to genocide indigenous people if they had just paid a living wage. So these things are interconnected, right? The United mm -hmm. States has never had a culture of responsible business ownership that can support human life. That is a big part of why we had so much westward expansion. It was not just the gentleman farmers grabbing new tracks, although that was a huge part of it. It was we had poor people desperate to get away from places they governed. It and was so, a pressure valve. I mean, uh -huh. that's what it functioned as. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like when people talk about how things used to be good, I'm like, look at the economics of the early United States. That thing was a runaway freight train of exploitation. <laughs> Can we just talk about that for just a second? Because yeah, I don't do know that. if it's my Ashki Jewish part of me, but I don't think of the past as a place where things were better. Like yeah. it's always been kind of like a train wreck of exploitation and misery tempered by resistance, rebellion, and consensus governance. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and I see that from like the people's response part of it. Like you can find communities that were self-governing or you can find people who went from one place to another place based on the pressures of say economic exploitation, genocide, literally being forcibly relocated. They end up creating something from it that might be positive, that might've sustained them or created a sense of security or sense of home. But ultimately there's just a sequence of exploitative and violent movements in history. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I just, when I did my master's in violence, conflict and development studies at SOAS, mm -hmm. one of the prevailing theories of violent behavior is that the past was a place of barbarism. Well, that's not true. The past and the, and the future, which is the present, ultimately no different in terms of how we handle violence greed or grievance it's all political economy yeah people have so, always been people yeah people have always been people and powerful people have tried to exert that power over other people in very violent ways mm -hmm. it's just it's interesting in this whole nostalgia movement that people are like oh yeah no there was a time mm -hmm. when it was better and fairer and you could just be i don't know what are they thinking like independent or unregulated <laughs> i mean like are those two synonymous it's interesting for me to think about because I think that this is where this nostalgia movement and progressive movements have links. Like people want to be self-governing and they want to be rooted and they want to be self-sustaining and they want to be not exploited, some mm. of them. But understanding that the situations that allow for those conditions have been very few and far between and mostly what we've seen with things like westward expansion where people felt like, oh, I am living in a free place where there is no government and there is no taxes and nobody's making me do stuff. I just have to murder all these people and mm -hmm. take out the buffalo and possibly lay these train tracks. And then, you know, like, then my philosophical ideological mission can be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But we can't miss those parts. Those are really important dynamics and why you ended up there. And mm -hmm. then this, what you're talking about being that they didn't just decide that railroad tracks are the way of the future or buffalo hunting paid a great wage. It paid a great wage compared to 
what they were earning on sharecropped farms or other places where they were basically being squashed in order to make way for the profits of the very rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Captive labor was a very common thread in U.S. history. And again, when you say that, people are like, oh, yeah, plantations in the South. And I'm like, sharecropping in the North. <laughs> Being a dock worker or a domestic laborer in the North, also kind of captive labor. Certainly not in the same kind of way. I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, it was. I hate the term wage slavery. I think that's stupid. Ah, shit. I, really? I don't love it. Yeah. I'm like, exploitative wage conditions certainly exist. You know, like, again, my family comes from coal mining country where they're kept in debt peonage. And like often legally you couldn't escape. I still don't call that slavery. It's a whole different thing. It was a kind of captive labor, but I don't, I think it's a little. We need a new term. Like we need yeah. a new term. That's yeah, okay we don't to have say. terminology like, for that. We need a new term for this that basically is forcing your children to replicate your financial model in order to keep you all from starving, but you can't really leave. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's not slavery. They were not enslaved. Mm -hmm. They were trapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, there's just all kinds of different ways to screw people. And yeah, I'm like, I don't really think it's appropriate to just like kind of point at everything and be like, that's a slavery. That's a slavery. That's a very kind of specific thing. That being said, there's a lot of different ways to do slavery. It doesn't always look the the classic. The way that we think model. it does. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, jailhouse slavery is a thing. Like I've worked with a lot of inmates who were, you know, if you ask them, are you forced labor? They'd be like, well, no, I get like 50 cents a day for this. And it's a job training program. But they got lied to about that. And also they couldn't escape, you know, like if you're working in field labor jobs that free people don't take because it's better than being in a prison and getting beaten all the time and being with like inmates that you're scared of. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't call that free labor. And the 13th Amendment is, is a thing, right? So there's just a lot of different ways to screw people and we should we should talk about it. So sharecropping is one of those ways to do that. I feel like people often are kind of taught to think of sharecropping as a euphemism for poor black farm labor. That's not true. It's like sharecropping did happen to a lot of black people. It also happened to a lot of white people. It is a specific economic arrangement, right? Right. So it means that you're assigned a plot of land and you farm it and the landlord keeps part of the harvest, uh, often about 50%. The word for sharecropping in French, Spanish, a lot of other Latin-based languages is like half. So in French, it's metaillage. In Spanish, it's farming a la mitad. So it's like farming on the halfsies, basically, mm -hmm. is kind of how they put it. Which I will say to that, the rent is too damn high. The rent is too damn high. 50% is a lot, right? That's a it's lot. It's like, oh, the landlord is providing the land. Often they would also provide like fertilizer, livestock, seed. In the South, which we'll get into in a minute, they would also provide food at exorbitant markups. So we'll get into that shortly. But for now, let's focus on how it was going on in the North. I feel another musical interlude coming on, though. I just got to tell you, you know, like... Hamilton about, gets involved. So about the yes. company store. Oh my God, are we going to do Hamilton today? <gasps> Score! Alexander Hamilton was not a nice guy. So I know, I know. So I mean, he, you... he created Wall Street. I'm shocked. Oh, shocked. there's more. There's more. Okay, so feudalism was technically legal in New York until like 1845. Oh. Yeah, straight up feudalism. So what had happened was uh, when the Dutch were settling New York, they were like, we have these vast tracts of land, but it doesn't really count unless you can get people to go occupy it because then the indigenous people will just come back. We've got to run a land occupation program here. How are we going to do that? So their system, they call it the patroon system or patron. They would get some like guys who are doing like fur trading, you know, like uh, gem and other commodity trading. They would grant them big tracts of land in the Hudson Valley in exchange for like, if you can get this many people to come over and farm it, you will get to keep this plot of land. So then you are a feudal lord you know in dutch new amsterdam so they just like totally replicated the feudal system that's just how government and land ownership worked at the time 
that was the form new york was once to amsterdam yes Why they changed it i can't say well they didn't no, so they didn't <laughs> <laughs> that's an update to the song yeah so when the english take over they're like uh there's all these rich patroons well we're not going to piss them off you guys can keep your patroonships in fact the system is working so well that we're going to grant our own in the hudson valley <gasps> so yes so the english start granting manners like that american revolution comes along so officially the united states abolishes feudalism because that was on the table was are we going to keep doing this or not right so officially the united states abolished feudalism but a lot of the patroon families in upstate new york supported the american side in the revolution you're not going to reward them for their support by stripping them of their estates now are you that would be so rude so rude so rude so um there are a few big patroon families there's the van rensselers who still have a ton of stuff named after them in upstate new york that is true yeah one of the founders of the home movement was a van rensselaer there's a van rensselaer college what was it rensselaer polytechnic i don't know yeah um, yeah mm-hmm. and there are other patroon families who are very prominent like the skylers <gasps> yes the skyler sisters were feudal Skyler-Mule. baronesses yep i believe it yeah so hamilton marries himself into a prominent patroon family and they're like, Alexander Hamilton, we have this problem. Technically, feudalism is getting illegal. What are we going to do? And he was like, okay, here's what we do. I'm a lawyer. I'm a hotshot. I'm going to write you some contracts that are not technically feudalism. They're going to get around all these feudalism laws. Instead of leasing land to your peasants, what you're going to do is you're going to have a sale that never completes. Ooh. Yes. And you have yeah. to keep paying every year. And if you want to leave, you have to pay quit rent so that... Normal rent is when you pay rent to stay. Quit rent is when you have to pay to leave. So uh, Alexander Hamilton made it possible for feudalism to persist in the uh, in upstate New York until the 1840s. And the reason it finally left was, I mean, the dynasties who owned the patroonships like kind of like frittered away and fell apart and got into other things. The Van Rensselaers were the last big ones. Mm. And uh, second to last one just got really bored with being a patroon. He was like, oh. I like the Erie Canal more. Like he was really working hard to get the Erie Canal built because then there would be more traffic past his like manor on the Hudson River mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it was it was a boosterism project for him. Got really into it. He got really into like techno innovation and stuff. Got bored with patroonship. And so he just didn't bother to collect rent for like decades towards the end of his life. Hmm. And he instructed his heir. He was like, look, I have this much in debts. And I have this much in, like, back rent that I haven't collected in, like, 20 years. They're almost exactly the same amount. How fortunate is that? So as soon as it dies, of (laughs) course. How fortunate is that? (laughs) I love the idea that somebody just basically were released from serfdom. Somewhat accidental-like. That's cool. Yeah. Until the heir comes along and he's like, well, I got to collect all this back rent because my daddy's got bills to pay. And so they did not take that very well. And they started shooting back at the sheriff's. (laughs) (laughs) we do have a tendency in upstate new york to follow the lead of play stupid games win stupid prizes Mm -hmm. so i feel that yeah so the shooting actually didn't get anything changed what happened was people started running for sheriff and promising i will not collect back rent (laughs) is what happened (laughs) um and then eventually it became clear that this legal situation was untenable and so new york had a state constitutional convention to finish outlawing feudalism Excellent. within a decade or two. So that's what wound up happening. It's called the anti-rent wars or the rent wars, depending if you want to look it up. It's a, uh, it's pretty fun. 
it did involve a lot of peasants dressing up in red face because I guess that's a, a thing that white people do is like, if we're going to act crazy, we have to pretend to be someone else. And I'm just like, own it. You can There's do that. There's got to be some sort of psychosocial explanation for that to do with a lack of ritual or I don't know. That sounds yeah, Shari is a thing fascinating. You can just go for that. Like you're living in a feudal system. Just Shari Vari, you could do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. But we didn't. Anyway, so that's what happened in upstate New York. Feudalism was a thing. Sharecropping was a thing. So sharecropping is just kind of like if you take the economics of feudalism and just kind of adopt it to a capitalistic society. So like this is a thing that's kind of funny to me. People are like, and then we transition from feudalism to capitalism. And I'm like, tell me how they're different because rich people own all the stuff and everyone else has to pay rent. They're the same. Right. (laughs) And the expectation is you will never earn your way out Mm -hmm. of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, what's the point of owning property if no one has to pay you extractive rent to access it? Exactly. Like, yeah. It's a new business model. An old yeah. business model, but a new business model. Yeah. So that's my hot take is, like, you know, we have this kind of cultural idea of, like, oh, we had the Renaissance, and we had the Enlightenment, and we had, like, the Industrial Revolution, and now that was the Middle Ages, and this is modern times. And I'm like, they're the same, though. I it's think we're still living in the Middle Ages. Like, I This looks very similar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, we might the buildings as well... are taller but the structure's the same. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I think there's like some conspiracy theory of like, oh, the Middle Ages didn't exist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just kind of like, you know, the culture that we have now is not substantially different. Wait, the Middle Ages didn't exist? Okay. This is is things you learn about when you're getting a haircut in Fayetteville, North Carolina, is you hear about the latest (laughs) conspiracy theories. Um, (laughs) Dear God. I had a fun talk with the haircut lady about like dendrochronology. I'm like, this is how we know these centuries actually happen. The trees remember, like we have tree rings that can tell us. She was into it because she was like, I've heard this and it doesn't sound right. There's yeah. this conspiracy theory floating around about it. And we got so into talking about it and like, here's how we can use archaeology and like science to like know that the time passed and what happened all this time. I wasn't paying attention. She gave me a shag haircut. <laughs> <laughs> It's supposed to frame your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't going for that, but it happened. So that's now you know the rest of the story. Yeah. I think you took one for the team, Sarah. I yeah, you, you know, psychoms is life and we did it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Feudalism in the United States theoretically ended. Yeah, theoretically again. Ended. Yeah. So so again, bottom line. Two. Yeah. So the wealthy farmers found this is like a really great way to contain the poor people because if we let them go farm on their own, then they're just gonna ruin all the land asterisk use all the timber before we can get to it and that would be terrible um, that would be so bad that would be for so our deforestation of the adirondacks plan mm-hmm. yeah the deforestation is fine as long as we make the money off of it right so that's what they were worried about yeah. in the course of this a lot of like poor whites and like also people who were enslaved on plantations like ran away and joined indigenous communities so that was another reason that Genocide of indigenous communities had a lot of political support among rich white people. If people can just run away and go live with them and assimilate into those communities, which a lot of people did, then we lose labor, we lose legitimacy, we lose our cannon fodder to go fight those people. Yes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just about stealing land. I want to make that really clear. Like, obviously, that was a big part of it. Well, we can also call it a campaign of terror, right? Yeah, the genocide of indigenous... You wanted to provide a disincentive. Yeah, And the disincentive was, well, we just slaughtered those people all over there mm-hmm. in that village and community. Do you want that to happen to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the genocide of indigenous people was not just about resource theft. It was about eliminating a political rival. Because these were communities that, like, the guns, germs, and steel version of history of like, oh, they didn't have guns. And that's why they got slaughtered. Not true. They not traded true. for guns. They had so many guns. 
it was that they were a political rival. They had militaries. They were very capable military resistance. Uh, that's why expansion into the West was kind of slow for a long time. You know, after smallpox, a lot of communities rebuilt, especially in the Ohio Valley. That's why when the U.S. invaded, a lot of what they did was destroying food systems because then people can't come back. They right. found that actual military campaigning was not enough because communities in the Ohio Valley, the Haudenosaunee people, Cherokee were pretty capable at fighting back. And so they had to destroy their food systems and starve them out. And so that's that's another element of the U.S. food system is we use food to, as a weapon. We seize natural resources from people and make sure that they're accumulated in the hand of wealthy white supporters of the United States to make sure that nobody else can get some and nobody else can be independent of this empire. Mm-hmm. So <sighs> that's food systems. The gentlemen farmers had a word for all the people who weren't themselves. You know, they're like, we're the good farmers. We're sustainable. And everyone else is a skimmer is what they called it. A skimmer. Skimmer. If you're a squatter who like does slash and burn and you leave after a few years, as many poor white farmers did, you're a skimmer. And also the people who own slave plantations called them skimmers too. Because like the Thomas Jefferson Monticello, like Monticello, excuse me, Monticello is the town in Utah, Monticello model where you like have your estate and you live there for like decades and decades and, and generations. That was for wealthy gentlemen who like needed to keep the same address to run for political office. Most of the people who actually own slave plantations and all those crews of people were very mobile. They'd stay in a place for like three, five, seven, maybe 10 years, burn it, move on. Yeah. That's why, again. Was that because of like soil fertility laws? Yeah. Yeah. So it was not. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So that was the slavery business model for the most part was like grab attractive land, force your people to cut it down. Slash and burn agriculture is crazy labor intensive. Nobody really does that by choice if they have an alternative. Nope. So when you have forced labor, you can do that very effectively. Liquidate the land, liquidate all these people, because the death rate for people who were forced into this kind of labor was very, very high. Liquidate everything, move on. So if you're a gentleman farmer up in the north, you're referring to squatters who are doing it in small family basis and slave plantation owners as the same kind of farming, which is really interesting to me. They called them both skimmers. They drew no distinction between them. They were just like all those terrible, worthless people. So... That gentleman farming that couldn't see the difference between those two things remains the ideological basis of, like, the sustainable farming movement today. It's kind of funny to me. This is fascinating, though. I mean, like, was it jealousy-inspired in some way? Well, no, it was just like, we have to, we're the good people and everyone else is bad. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, the model was a little bit similar. Like, yeah, they go to place, slash and burn and move on, right? So in that sense, yeah, they're similar. Economically, though, very different phenomena. And the fact that the gentlemen farmers were not interested in making that distinction, I feel like just says so much to me. But that's kind of the cultural core of gentlemen farming and sustainable farming we still have in the U.S. today is like people who have a lot of wealth from other Mm -hmm. things, spending it on a farm and then waxing rhapsodic about how wise and virtuous they are and going, why isn't everyone else doing this? (laughs) And really intentionally not seeing the economics behind any of it. So, right. Because that goes to the crafted narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they yeah, want to so... see themselves in different ways. Yeah. Or they want us to see them in different ways. Or mm-hmm. both. Both yeah. might be. Might be. Yeah. Yeah. So like when you look at folks who do sustainable farming and, and kind of write about it, and they'll they'll kind of draw on these older writings of people going like manure, blah, blah, blah. That's who they're drawing from. <laughs> and it's not to say like sustainable farming and these tactics aren't good. They're fine. But we have to recognize that they're coming from a certain political and economic context. That was incredibly abusive of labor. That was pro genocide. Yeah, and there was not 
environmentally Mm -hmm. in sync. Yeah. And to be clear, like there's, there's good ways to use fire. A lot of these indigenous communities were using fire to like manage forests and grassland. They're doing it right. Mm -hmm. Slash and burn, exporting all the wood and exporting all the ashes for sale is not that. So yeah, like there's, there's controlled burns and then there's just like cheap clearing with fire. They're, they're, they're different. Yeah. They're, you can say that more. just because you're using fire doesn't mean you're using fire in the right way. Doesn't mean you're using fire in the same way. Mm-hmm. These are different, different mm-hmm. techniques. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a quick As little As you are talking to us from a Pine Barren area. Yeah. Oh boy. Boy. Let mm-hmm. me tell you. I miss mules. Do you? No. <laughs> Be like. End of story. <laughs> yeah. I uh I don't know that I would miss mules, but they're really task oriented. Um and my one time working with mules really was there was this retired beef rancher in Florida near UF, and I was like, Hey, this is this is like in the in-between era between like paper print stuff with classified ads and like the internet was just kinda like starting to be more how people were conducting business. So I contact this guy um from a draft animal periodical, and I was like, Ooh. Hey, you're in my area. You got mules. Can I come learn how to drive mules? And he was like, sure. Um, I love their draft animal periodicals. Of course. It's just, it is beautiful. Yeah. It's like a, a draft mule zine, you know? Um. <laughs> now I'm just picturing just, you know, five emo kids with black eyeliner, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. locked in an apartment at 3 a.m. pumping mm-hmm. out this draft mule zine. Yeah. Probably, yeah. I'm sure that's that was the situation, right? So, dude's name was Charlie. Go out there. He's got two mules, crackers and Rufan, and um, and a bunch of rodeo cutting horses, right? Um, okay. So rodeo cutting horses, you know, they're using them like if you're routing up cattle. Okay, I, I want to isolate that cow or that calf from the herd so I can like check it out, like vaccinate it, treat it for something, brand it, just do whatever you need to do. This is how you like get an animal from the herd and these are horses that are specially trained to do that because there's some technique to it right mm-hmm. so he had this one cutting horse that had like a foot problem so it wasn't serious enough that you had to put it down but it needed to like just go easy on that foot for a while so the best way to do that was have it in the paddock like out in the field so it could still be with its friends so that it's not getting lonely and panicked and isolated and stuff mm. Um, but it needed to not run around with the rest of the herd. So he got a bunch of like cattle panels, which is like temporary fencing, kind of made like a small pen, maybe the size of a bedroom. So it had a spot to be in the field. We kind of keep it in that one place, wouldn't run around too much, but it still got to be with the other horses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you got to move this pen around every like once a day, ideally, so it doesn't get too gross. Yep. So he was like, hey, can you help me move this pen? Because that was part of the thing was like, I would help him with chores in exchange for for training, right? So removing this pen so you gotta take the panels apart you get yeah take the horse back into the barn so it doesn't like run free while you do this take it to the barn take each panel apart take it to a different part of the field so we get into the pasture and it's i don't know three to five cutting horses and the two draft mules so they're not just mules their mom was like a belgian so they're enormous tank size (laughs) draft mules and um we go in the paddock so i'm i'm new they don't know me so the horses all bolt to the other end of the field. It's like kind of a long, skinny field. And they kind of just look at us like the deer in the headlights kind of look like, who is this? What are they doing? You know, and all the animals are looking at us. We start moving the panels around and the two draft mules come towards us. The horses are just like frozen on the other end of the paddock. Like, what's happening? I don't know. The draft mules are curious. They come over and then like they see that we're moving the panels and they're like, oh, okay, we're moving panels. And they start kind of like whapping it with their faces, like trying to push it over there. <laughs> they're helping. 
It's yeah, like I was toddlers. Like, They're helping yeah. you. I know. I was like, oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are doing such a good job. Thank you. Thank you. Stop that. Yeah. No, they they like paid attention. They're like, what are we doing now? Okay, got it. You know, um, I was like, Crackers was like, so Rufan was like the best mule. Like she just, she was like, what are you doing? Let's do it. Um, Crackers was a jackass. I'm like, okay, I get where the term comes from now. Um, <laughs> he was task oriented, but for him, the task was like, how can I mess with this person? Right. Um, so yeah. So like the two of them hitched together in a team was always like... <laughs> She's like, what did I do to deserve this? And he was Hi. like, this is great fun. On with the anarchism. Right. Ruthann's thing. I don't know that they'd always been a team, like the two of the mules, but Ruthann had been trained in the logging camp. She'd been trained for logging rather than like agricultural field work. <laughs> so if you're hauling logs, they're very heavy. So every time you said go, she would like slam full speed into the harness. She would just like, boom, oh like God. jump. Like, boom. Yeah. Um, you know, instead of start walking, which is more what you want to do when you're normally <laughs> doing field equipment because that's how you get a log moving you have to like jam it right of course so, momentum mm -hmm. yeah so that was her approach to life she was like let's go boom <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying to teach her that it's, it's okay to walk sometimes like that was a thing we had to teach her and i feel like that's relatable i feel that a lot i actually think that if you went into life coaching the mm -hmm. ruth ann mule approach to to life might be like that might be a thing mm -hmm. to really focus on mm -hmm. It was a core, you know. Mm -hmm. Should talk to Brene Brown about it. Mm -hmm. My mouth is full of pizza right now. I'm just like, go for it, Dan. You're the best. <laughs> That's cool. The mules live forever, so she's probably still out there. You know, like going too hard. <laughs> I I appreciate the uh, there's only two speeds approach. You know, mm -hmm. either we're doing this mm -hmm. or we're not. Mm -hmm. Those are the things. Mm -hmm. She was kind of like tearing the equipment up, actually. Mm, because like sure. farm equipment was not made to handle that kind of acceleration that she was giving it. <laughs> <laughs> she was I so hard. Hundred <laughs> percent believe that. Mm -hmm. Especially like horse-drawn stuff, like it's often like vintage, you know. <laughs> I love that vintage farm equipment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was good times. Um, I don't know, mules are relatable. That's all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, well, my solid, my uh, cheers to Ruth Ann right there. I miss that mule. Anyway, oh, yeah. um, where were we? Uh, you said that we had a specific vignette oh. that we were going to do, Pelagra. Yeah. Okay. So if you've been following me on Twitter, you've heard this one before. Uh <laughs> Twitter. Um, it sh who shall not be named. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just a hell site. It was a hell home. Um... <laughs> Love it. So Pelagra. We'll catch people up on what Pelagra is, and then we'll go into how it happened. So Pelagra is a nutrient deficiency. You know, if you don't get enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So if you don't get enough niacin, you get Pelagra. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking that up on WebMD. It mm. does not look fun. No. Yep. It looks mm -mm. extremely unfun. The classic symptoms are what they call the three Ds. There is dementia, mm -hmm. uh, dermatitis, and diarrhea. Mm. So dermatitis is like your skin just kind of like gets crusty and, you know, kind of starts to fall off, especially where the sun hits it, like so your face, neck, hands. Diarrhea just messes with your guts. So you're going to have some of that. And then dementia, you just start to lose your gosh dang mind. That's that's pelagra. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Ah, so niacin, niacin mm -hmm. is in flour, right? Mm -hmm. It is. Ah. So you'd have to not be eating wheat flour to get that. Like consistently. You like know, over time. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So pellagra was really rampant in the United States, especially in the South, for a period of 40 years, 1900 to 1940. 100,000 people died, at least. What? Yeah. But why? Why? Yeah. How did this come to be? Well, we're going to get into that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're just, oh, we laugh so we don't cry. Sorry. We're not laughing because Pellagra is funny. We're laughing because the fact that people forgot about it is like kind of wild. I will just say that there was an instance, it was in the paper when I was in high school, where two Cornell students decided to go on like a beer only diet and ended up mm. giving themselves scurvy. Yeah. That was somewhat entertaining, you know, yeah. like scurvy's not, but yeah. that was. But this, I think, is a little more serious. A, li a little bit, yeah. So we had this malnutrition epidemic that ran rampant in the United States for 40 years. That's over a generation. And it ended That's in 1940. True which is like within a lot of people's living memory. And yet it's not really well remembered. Like we just kind of memory hold the whole thing. So we should talk about why so many people had this one really specific nutrient deficiency. Were um, they all in the same area? Or was it for an over a large, where, where were these people? Oh, huge geographic area. So oh. it was, it was all poor people, right? Okay. Poor That's and sure. otherwise marginalized. The thing that unites all of us. The thing that unites everyone, right? Okay. So the main diet, if you were poor at the time, especially in the South, was three things, basically. It was corn, like just cornmeal, grits, mm -hmm. salt pork, which also like they call it fat back or like whatever, but it's a protein. Yeah. yeah. Preserved pig parts with salt mm -hmm. and molasses. So that could either be like usually it was sugar molasses. Sometimes it was sorghum molasses that was made more locally. So you have a diet made of three things. So the fact that it was only deficient in one nutrient actually is kind of impressive. <laughs> Shocking. But so can I ask, like, just again, from a more Eastern European perspective, why not cabbage? Like, why? Where were the greens? Yeah. Okay. That's that's the kind of question we should be asking, right? All right. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, let's expand on that. So the the medical professional, the public health guy who really picked it apart was a doctor named Gisselgelberger, Hungarian immigrant, Jewish. He was the son of a grocery store owner. So it was kind of known that Pelagra was related to eating too much corn for a long time because it had outbreaks of it in Italy, where they called it the Pelagra. Yeah, they called it Pelagra. So that's rough skin, but they also called it the disease of the landlord. Oh. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Hmm. Because when corn was introduced to Italy, it's very productive. It gives you a lot of yields per acre. And so landlords are like, cool, we can charge people more rent now. So, you know, wheat, again, is kind of a higher status food that was going to the landlord. So people had to grow corn for their own subsistence on very, very small plots. And so they're eating primarily corn. This is where we get polenta, which is delicious, but not a great staple, it turns out. Nope. Yeah. So it's missing something. It's missing a little something, right? So the way indigenous peoples in the Americas got around this is they would nishtimalize it, right? They would soak corn grains in lye water you know that like had ashes dissolved in it so i think what they were mostly doing it for was to get the so that you could grind it right so corn is very hard seed wheat is a little bit more easier to squash into a flour corn is very hard so the main reason you initialize is just like to mechanically break the seed down right you make a nice soft puffy seed that you can grind very easily by hand with stone into tortillas and kind of like a a wet dough 
So whereas corn, or excuse me, whereas wheat, we kind of grind dry into a flour, traditionally, indigenous communities who grew corn in the Americas would do a wet milling process. It's what we call it <laughs> in industrial lingo, right? So there's a dry milling process. They used a wet milling process. There was a lye soak. It would kind of strip the seed coat off, you know, like a eat popcorn you get those seed coats stuck in your teeth it would just mm -hmm. loosen that make it come off it would gelatinize the starch so it makes the dough better it would improve the flavor is another thing it would do so like the difference between like just cornmeal and then like a nice tortilla kind of has like an extra deeper flavor it's kind of sweeter nishtamalizing yep. does that now i want popcorn yeah, yeah. good job all team right. all right nishtamalizing yeah, yeah nishtamalizing it's with Great an x flavor. i'm pretty sure that's what the x stands for in like in Spanish, in that era is a sound like the Mexica, you know, mm -hmm. is where we get Mexico. So that's what I'm calling it. It's nationalizing. If I'm doing it wrong, just quietly laugh to yourselves, y'all. Have a good time. Somebody will tell you. Yeah. We're Somebody gonna will. It. It's going to be great. So, okay. So, but the lie. So, was it the, the breakdown of the seed coat that mm -hmm. added the niacin back in, or was it the lie itself? Yeah. So, I'm not sure exactly what the process is, but that process also makes the niacin in it more available. Oh. I will, however, point out that most indigenous peoples were not eating only corn the way poor colonialists were later. They were also right. eating game, fish, beans, a lot of other plants. So it's kind of funny to me when it's like there's this whole discourse about the whole reason why poor Southerners got pellagra is because they didn't know to nishtamalize. Because they did. Mm. It's called hominy. Hominy <laughs> is nishtamalized corn. <laughs> many grits are grits made from nationalized corn mm -hmm. so not only is it not true that poor southerners didn't know how to nationalize they did but also indigenous peoples were also eating a much more varied diet than the people who are getting pellagra right so you're like eh, it's technically true that like lack of nationalization can lead to pellagra but there's also a lot of other things going here anytime we're talking malnutrition there's usually like a whole host of factors going into it it's not just like i think Poor Southerners didn't know to nishtamalize really took off in popularity because like it just sounds right. It's like, oh, these poor hicks are too dumb. They don't know how to cook. It really fits into that discourse we have of like everyone is malnourished because they're dumb and stupid and lazy. Right. Well, I mean, this is this is a constant theme. It's mm -hmm. it is a lot of blaming the victim for being caught up in a health related systems process. Mm -hmm. That is somewhat of a flaw, mm -hmm. but also kind of how the system works. Mm -hmm. right yeah so mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so in fact if you look back at how rich southern landowners at the time were mentally dealing with pellagra because they had to make it poor people's fault that they were sick because otherwise it was rich people's fault right right that's where a lot of these poor dumb people are too stupid to cook right discourse comes from was the pellagra epidemic and a way to victim blame people for starving oh yeah so and starving when... in horrific ways yeah, your skin's falling apart and you're losing your mind because mm -hmm. rich people are cheap. So when we have these conversations now about like, oh, you know, like we just have to educate consumers, which is a really nice paternalistic way of saying they're too stupid to live and mm -hmm. we have to tell them how to live, right? This is where it comes from. It comes straight out of victim blaming that rich Southern gentry used during the Pellagra era to absolve themselves of blame. Isn't that fun? That is super fun. That's yeah. super fun. Yeah. It's also reminiscent of the whole, uh, well, no, uh, the, the Irish potato harvest just failed. Mm -hmm. It just failed. And that's why people yeah. starved. And yeah. mm -hmm. it failed everywhere. People only starved in Ireland. 
That's true. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there was something else to that, Sarah. Like, yeah, perhaps. God, so crazy. So let's talk about this something else. Let's talk about the land cropping system in the South that led to uh, Pellagra. So many of us are aware the South grew a lot of cotton, right? Had heard a rumor. Yeah. So the deal with that and, and why cotton was king, that confuses people sometimes because many years in that like king cotton era, cotton prices were not good. And yet, even when cotton prices were quite low, landowners kept growing more and more cotton. What's the deal? Makes no sense, right? If this is capitalism, we are trying to make more money. Oh, the rationality of the market. Continue yes. on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> made of totally rational people. Um, I love how like, we've all had a horrible ear loss story, and yet we're all committed to the idea that the economy is rational. Um, it's it's all made of these doofuses. Come on, guys. Uh <laughs> I just also feel like we have all these systems that are not rational in any way and all these economic processes that are not sustainably rational in any way, right? In any way, not just rational, just not at all. And yet this is still a dominant, again, narrative, this this false, false narrative. Well, I think rich people just really need us to think that they know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) So that they can continue doing it. They can Mm -hmm. continue exercising this power completely unchecked. Mm -hmm. Exciting. So let's talk about King Cotton. So King Cotton (laughs) was not funny. It was this era, again, we laugh so we don't cry. King Cotton was this era, you know, post-Civil War, the South is still relying on cotton. So there are some very specific reasons why you can grow almost anything down here. Like I just had a fun run this summer where I found out that boysenberries love the South, but we don't have a, a boysenberry industry down here. Tragic. That's weird. Yeah. So like we've got a few alternative crop industries. We've got peaches and pecans that kind of like centered on Georgia and South Carolina. We've got citrus in Florida. But for the most part, it was just like wall-to-wall cotton, right? So the reason for that, if you are a rich white landowner after the Civil War, the agricultural censuses from the USDA in the decade or two after that are so funny. Are they? Because Yeah, because the census taker will get down there and they'll be like, they'll show up to an old plantation. They're like, so who owns this land, guys? And the people living there have differing opinions. You have the white landowner who's like, it's all mine. All This whole tract is mine. Like the one with the fence and it has the nice little plantation nameplate. It's all mine. <laughs> and all the people who used to be enslaved there are like, well, no, this 20 acres is mine. Those 20 acres are the other guys. Those 40 acres are this other guys. We've carved this place up among ourselves because remember y'all lost a war? Mm-hmm. It's ours now. Yeah. And no one could quite agree on what was happening. It's shocking. So, yeah. So the censuses after that are, are really something to read. <laughs> there is a note of... <laughs> And I think it was the 1870 or 1880 census. And they're like, our estimates of the number of small and large farms might be a little off owing to the wholly anomalous condition of the South. It's amazing. <laughs> so that's, well, that's an activity for people to engage mm-hmm. on after they listen to this podcast, you know, is get your friends together mm-hmm. and your drink of choice and yeah. read census records. Yeah, right every time it sounds dumb, but I, I tell you, if you dig into actual USDA agricultural records, something Bat honkers crazy jumps out on every single page. It is <laughs> like I, I had to stop because I was like getting too much information. I was like, I need to stop and just write the book already. Um, <laughs> just something wild on every page. This sounds like a great Tumblr. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> if you're a nerd, have I got the job for you? And right. it's all publicly available on the internet. There's like no excuse for why farm writers don't use this stuff and like use it as a source because the info is all out there. They just don't want to do it. Calling all farm writers. We are missing historical humor. Historical mm-hmm. humor here. Come mm-hmm. back. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it, it was a hard time to be an elite white person who's a landowner. Um, so difficult. So yeah. difficult. So at first they tried, okay, well, let's, all this, 
a lot of enslaved, formerly enslaved people were like, we're out of here. You know, they went off to places like Kansas. Uh, they called them like, the exodusters. Uh, Nicodemus, Kansas, I think, was a, a big, we have left the South, we're farming for ourselves now community. The white North responded by passing sundown laws. They're like, you can come work for us during the daytime, but you cannot live here. That was an effort to keep experienced farmers out of the Midwest so they wouldn't compete with the people who are already there. Interesting. Yeah. The th- if you had been enslaved on a plantation, you knew how to grow big acreage cash crops, and you also knew how to grow a subsistent garden for your own use, right? Mm-hmm. Very competent farmers. White folks up north didn't want the competition. So that's what sundown laws were about. It wasn't just racism. It was also fear of being caught by your own incompetence. Those things just go together so many times, in my experience. So this is fun. Yeah. So the, if if you're newly freed and you're like, where do I go? A lot of places don't want you. So a lot of folks were like, well, let's just listen. We're here now. This is where my family is. We're going to farm here. We're going to carve this place up for ourselves. We're going to run it. Um, however, they never got any reimbursement for the fact that they've been working for free for, you know, however long of their life. Right. So yeah. they're starting from nothing, may not even own the clothes on their backs. So what do you do? Um, you go to work for a wage because you can do that now. Mm-hmm. So White plantation owners at first were like, okay, well, we'll hire you for a wage. The problem with people working for a wage is they can go on strike. Mm. Terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Man, higher wages. And what you do is you wait until cotton harvest and you're like, and now that in this emergency, we think you need to pay us more. You can time your strikes to the labor cycle. Yeah. So the thing white landowners tried after that was sharecropping. Because mm. remember, that was a method perfected up north. Right. Yes. So the beautiful- that, a best practice, if you will. A worst practice developed at work. <laughs> so the reason that sharecropping is like such a such a stable agricultural arrangement is because you can't go on strike. If you're the laborer, you own half the crop. You don't get paid unless the whole thing gets harvested. It's what we like to call in entrepreneurship skin in the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That that you can't just take your toys and go somewhere else, even if, again, your toys are the thing that make everything happen Mm -hmm. and you own the right to your own toys and your own labor. No, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. You have to be part of a system where you walking away would be inadvisable and problematic for you personally, as well as for the people whose other investments Mm -hmm. are tied to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So sharecropping is a way to tie people down. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So once you have people tied down, there's a whole lot of other stuff you can do. So one thing that former slave owners in the South, they're desperate to reassert control over people, right? They're like, okay, we've got you sharecropping, but now what? Now do we? Now what do we do with that control? So many things. So one of their top tactics was fill up every available acre with cotton because you can't eat it. You're not going to let people grow edible crops. Again, the food insecurity to drive the labor exploitation. Yes, it is very important that we don't let people grow their own food. Because remember, like in before the Civil War, a lot of enslaved people were growing their own food crops. So they're growing cowpeas, collards, sweet potatoes, a lot of these edible crops that we associate with southern food because they grow well down there with very little maintenance. If you don't have a lot of time left over mm-hmm. at the end of a grueling enslaved workday to take care of your own stuff, you're going to grow things that are very low maintenance, very high productivity. So that's kind of like a lot of the origin of southern foodways is like things that kind of grow themselves as much as they can. That being said, like still very skilled farmers, they're like tending a cash crop plantation, then like growing their own food on the side. Like that is a skill base that I don't think we spend enough time thinking about. Mm-hmm. So we have hyper competent farmers and as a white landowner who's never had to do anything themselves, don't have those skills. They are terrified and we have to tie these people back down and put their work to work for us. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways they did that was forbid people to grow anything besides an inedible cash crop. That's why the South kept growing cotton, 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 even when cotton prices were very low. 
it was not just about a cash crop. It was about subjugation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which to go back to our earlier discussion about rationality of the market, when you look at what the rationality is, right? People don't do things for no reason, mm-hmm. but they do a lot of weird things for the reason of exploiting other people. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have this huge cash crop. Mm-hmm. We have lack of subsistence farming yeah. in addition to the cash crop. So what happens? So what happens is, well, you got to eat, right? So the way that you would, as a sharecropper, eat is you would get a loan from your landowner at the beginning of the crop year. So that loan was to cover seed, fertilizer. Often you'd be using their mule and plow, you know, if you got one at all. Because again, enslaved people were liberated but didn't own anything. So they had no tools with which to grow. The landowner still owned all that stuff. So that was another thing you could use to go like, oh, well, now you owe me more because the mule is mine. The plow is mine. The rent to own arrangement, except it wasn't a rent to own. It was just a rent. It was just perma rent to share Mm -hmm. crop. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Perma rent. Yes. So another fun thing is with an enslaved or formerly enslaved population, most people were not taught to read and write or do arithmetic. And so that gave the landed gentry a whole lot of avenue to just make shit up in the ledgers. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of telling people like if you work hard enough you can become free but then they're always screwing with the ledgers to make sure you never did the debt just piled up and up and up and up and it's like oh that's too bad you know like mm, bad harvest this year you barely had anything to harvest so you still have this giant bill you know what you could do is like i see your wife like has a lot of free time she could work in my house as a maid mm-hmm. okay yeah so it was like it was like a total labor solution is uh, <laughs> oh my god it's a i mean it's a scam right like uh-huh. it's literally a structured labor system that you cannot ever break free what does that remind me of remind me again what is that what is that word exactly except when we create when we're talking about feudalism feudalism was not uh allowable but we did a different system that we didn't call feudalism mm-hmm. we didn't call it that but it was the same structure we just thing yeah, it's the same thing. We're just recreating. The thing. Yeah. Recreating the same old thing. Yeah. There's just like that that song, there are 50 ways to leave your lover. There's just 50 ways to screw people over, you know? <laughs> we laugh so we don't cry. Uh, uh, surf by any other name mm-hmm. with surface sweet. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, the king cotton system was not really about growing cotton. Mm-mm. I mean, yeah, like they, they got enough to break even or make a little bit of money most years. But if you are one of these wealthy legacy white landowners, what do you need money for? You've got land. You've got people to do all the work for you. You've got a little garden that you can raise your own food on or ideally have other people raise your own food on. And you have domestic servants to clean your house and cook and raise your children. What the hell do you need money for? I mean, the next thing would be stock portfolios and buying more land but again you don't necessarily need that right you can maintain your lifestyle mm-hmm. off of the uh monetary wealth extracted from previous generations that didn't have to pay their labor mm-hmm. yeah so the thing is if you look into like how the landed aristocracy like justified what they were doing they resorted to a lot of pastoralism they were like we're not worried about money we're just about like the lifestyle here and like pastoralism and things move a little slower here and we have a sense of place and i'm going to point specifically to wendell berry as a big propagator of that like he when he says i'm from a fifth generation tobacco farm his family was one who owned it not sharecropped it right yeah he just kind of lets people assume he his family were the sharecroppers even though like 
it's weird because he has this book uh hidden wound which is like theoretically about like the hidden wound that slavery dealt to white people which is the real tragedy of slavery i must have missed that it's 1969 it was kind of like his his big breakout book where he was like slavery was bad for white people anyway let me tell you all about why paternalism rules (laughs) (laughs) that's really exciting yeah he apparently it sounded woke for a, a white guy in 1969 so he really built a career as being like he can speak to race relations and i'm like he certainly can uh I just it, it might be abort, like abort abort that yeah, red button just, abort don't do that yeah like this might just be like i've worked with a lot of southern gentlemen at, over the course of my day job but i'm just like they're a dime a dozen and they all talk like this none of them are out for the good of the country so i might be overexposed to people like wendell berry but i'm like he's not a moral leader anyway so this is all to say this is a digression the southern gentry class really leaned into pastoralism and anti-industrialism and we don't worry about money and we like live close to the earth as a way to justify their lifestyle, which was just exploiting humans directly instead of using cash to do it. (laughs) Again, like the term wage slavery was something that Southern gentry used to deflect from what they were doing. (laughs) This is why I don't like the term. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Oh, that's Um, very cute. This is why Wendell Berry, like his rhetoric is very much about like industrialization is the problem i'm like this is jim crow landowner rhetoric like uncut is what this is so you have this plantation owner class so like through the jim crow period this is how they were treating people so you have you've captured people to work on your land like technically slavery's been abolished but you've got these people living in servitude on your property You've got them in a permanent debt peonage system, you know, like my like my family was with coal miners. The system was all over the South. What these sharecroppers are eating is like corn, salt pork, and molasses, right? Because those are the cheapest things. If you're trying to get out, if you're trying to work your way out of poverty and right. debt, you eat the cheapest things you can. And oh, you a- do the fiscally responsible bootstrapping, right? Mm-hmm. You just you you don't go out for coffees, you don't yeah. eat avocado toast. Again, the con- the continuation of the narrative to present times, right? Yeah, yeah. These people were doing fiscally right. responsibly. Yeah, they were doing yeah. poverty. They, they were not cheap. What's the word when you frugal? Frugal. Yeah, yeah. that's the word. Thank you. Yeah. They weren't like spending money on frills, and so. So this three-part diet actually worked well for a long time because they're initializing the corn, so they're getting enough niacin. So pellagra started in 1900-1901. So poor people in the U.S. had been eating this three-part diet for a long time. That was like the standard poverty affair from like the 1600s onward. It became a nutrition problem in 1900 because of some food milling technology that was developed. Yeah. Was it KitchenAid? You can be honest with me. (laughs) It was, oh, what was it called? It was like Beers, Beals, Beals Corn Degerminator. Beals sounds like a very industrious sort. Yes, B-E-A-L-L apostrophe S, Beals, named after some guy named Beal. So before the Civil War, a lot of these cotton plantations actually grew most of their own food, right? Because their goal was not just to maximize sales of cotton, it was to keep the workforce busy. Well, it's the same principle as why you never want to see a general strike if you are an owner or an operator, right? If people are scared to lose their livelihood, they're not going to go on strike. They're not, you know, like if you keep people busy enough, a, a strike is unlikely because they have to eat, they have to work to eat, mm-hmm. they have to work to pay rent, right? It's mm-hmm. when they have no other mechanism of doing those things that you can really crush labor. 
If people yeah. have the ability to walk away from that work, even for an hour, even for a day, you they have power. They mm-hmm. have power over their own agency with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny, again, when we talk about like pastoral rhetoric and like, oh, this is why the agrarian life is better. One of the reasons people cite is, well, it's seasonal. You get time off. You work with the seasons. Well, if you're a slave owner, you don't like that because that means a lot of time people are not doing anything and they have time to sit around and talk shit about you and they're not exhausted. And that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's a management problem. So a lot of the reason that the plantation system grew its own food was strictly to keep people busy. Like, and also kept costs down, but it was like about keeping people too exhausted to resist, right? Well, it had a two-pronged benefit, right? Too exhausted to resist and also maximize your export to import ratio. It's energy. So, (laughs) so yeah, the way the crop cycle goes is like you plant corn kind of like, depending on where you are, like March, April, May, you know, because it's the South, our spring comes early. So you plant corn, you plant cotton, you weed the corn. Okay, now it's time to weed the cotton. So they, they kind of alternate a little bit. So corn really fills out gaps in the cotton workflow is what it does. So it's very useful if you're just trying to keep people exhausted at all times, no breaks, corn and cotton. Right. Always go, go, go. It's the hustle culture. Yeah. And then you get food sometimes, you know, if you're lucky. So you'd have crop failures sometimes, but that's okay. You could just buy corn from up north because that's what they're doing is they're expanding west and they're like, we're just going to go corn because we don't have other ideas. Because we like to drink whiskey. Yes. And so like this led to some interesting price fluctuations up north because some years there was a big demand for it down south and some years there wasn't. And they're like, why is this happening to us? Well, because you're dependent on an export market that is slavery. That's why this is happening to you. Boom. Yeah. So already in the Civil War, you have a little bit of a corn export market to the South. But most of it in the Midwest and, you know, as we're going West is actually going still to the Caribbean to feed slave plantations. So... The Midwest has this corn export market, you know, during the slavery period that starts to dwindle over time as slavery is abolished throughout the Caribbean. The Civil War hits, and the U.S. South suddenly switches from a plantation system to a sharecropping system. Mm-hmm. So the power, dif- like the power situation, is still very top down. You have like in- formerly enslaved people working on a similar routine for white landowners, but the way that power is exercised has changed, right? So now instead of like, legally, we've enslaved you and we can do whatever we want, that's no longer the case. We're using food to control people or lack of food. Food, militias, police, those things. The clan, you know, stuff like that. Those things. So, yeah. So the South is no longer growing corn. We're no longer doing that alternating corn-cotton cropping system. It's just all cotton all the time. Right? Mm -hmm. So we got to get our corn from somewhere. Where is it going to come from? The corn plantations up north, which, by the way sharecropped by 1920 40% of the quote unquote small family farms in Iowa were sharecroppers and tenants Ooh. yeah yeah do they talk about that these days in they Iowa really don't. yeah huh. like it was all small family farmers and I'm like 40% of whom are working for the man <laughs> working nine to nine every night yeah <laughs> so you've got like this dumbbell of sharecropping <laughs> I love your imagery Dumbbell of sharecropping. Okay, let's go. So you laugh so you don't cry. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So you have farmers in the Midwest growing, farmers and sharecroppers in the Midwest growing corn, sending it down the river to to the Mississippi, out to the coast to ship throughout the South. Corn is bulky to ship. This is why they're turning into like 
hogs and whiskey back in the day, right? It is bulky and expensive to ship. So they found that and if you- it can be a danger to life and limb, depending on the quantity of corn that you consolidate. I mean, like how many people die in corn related silo deaths every year? And that's a terrible way to go. Yeah. Squish. Enveloped by the corn. <laughs> like- Sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to laugh about that's. I mean, oh, oh, I saw that. I saw that, uh, whatever it was, Dallas 911. Never mind. Let's just ignore that vignette there. <laughs> Silos like to eat people. Like sometimes they bite back. You know what I mean? So silos eat people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. true Halloween horror of the yes. barn. Yes. Um, so yeah. So you have to move massive quantities of corn down to the south. And when I say massive, quick sidebar. I was trying to find trade figures. It's a little difficult to do that because it's it's not export or import. So it never hits the export import stats. It's all like interstate trade, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1917, someone was giving some testimony to Congress about like, you know, the U.S. feeding itself for the war effort or something. South Carolina alone imported like 70 to 100 million dollars worth of food in 1917. In 1917. Are dollars. you kidding me? Nope. No. Yeah. So that's And one these people state. can't pay reparations? WTF? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, South Carolina, one state alone, 70 to $100 million worth of food in 1917 dollars. So how much food was the entire South importing from the Midwest? It was something like, I did the math, just to adjust for, like, population and, like, inflation. So that'd be, like, about $20 billion worth of food per year. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is what the South was buying from the Midwest. So oh my pork. god yeah the corn oh my and salt- god yeah the corn and salt pork were coming from midwest molasses from the caribbean but most of it was coming from the midwest so we're going to come back to that in a minute because that had some impact on the midwest having that fire hose of money coming in for 20 years yeah um, for decades right 20 billion dollars yeah. a year well and, yeah. that, and that again south carolina didn't not produce corn during this time either right so it's that's 20 to 20 billion in addition to whatever the homegrown locals yeah and it's like there wasn't much like i mean if, if you owned your land you could grow some corn but most people were sharecropping right so right. they were when you but, get but back- it wasn't but it wasn't zero it wasn't like they never grew corn in south carolina it was this is a system that was set up to maximize cotton production. Mm-hmm. And one of the ancillary factors of that is that you had to import your corn. Mm-hmm. $20 yeah. billion dollars yeah. worth of corn. Forced scarcity of food just to like keep people dependent on landowners. Right. So the logistics of moving that much corn are challenging, like especially when you have like, oh, you know, slightly primitive supply chains, right? Mm-hmm. So what they figured out was, okay, we can ship just like, you know, corn on the cob that's too bulky so let's take the seeds off the cobs and then even that is kind of bulky what if we could grind it so we can just have sacks of cornmeal that we can ship down south because that's easier to haul yeah it's easier to haul like it's more compact you don't have as much air void space in the rail car (laughs) well and let's say well yeah i mean like either you right exactly air void space and if you're in a rectangular package or in a conical package right you can stack it in its mm-hmm. in its various permutations yeah it's the same center. philosophy as why we ended up moving to container ships in the shipping industry mm-hmm. right rectangles stack okay yeah, flows better and um if you're a southern landlord and you're like i i need my serfs to eat but i want them to work as much for me as possible like if they're making hominy initializing their corn it takes extra time to prepare like it, just, it takes more time that's time they're not working for you that's tragic We've got to eliminate that. So they figured out if we can get pre-ground corn, then they don't have to spend all their time like 
you know, all they have to do is boiling it. They don't have to boil it. Right. They just have to, they have to stir it up a little Mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. All you gotta do is boil it. So that's the ideal. The problem is if you grind corn or any other grain and then just ship it unrefrigerated, it's going to go rancid. Like there's oils Mm -hmm. in the germ Mm -hmm. of the seed. So Beal's corn to germinator was designed to solve that problem. We're just going to take the germ out. Oh, take the germ out. And then we grind the corn and then we ship it down South. So it's Mm -hmm. cheap bulk convenience food that Southern landlords wanted. But what happened to the niacin, Sarah, and it the was, vitamin B? It sounds like you might have heard what happens when you degerminate your grain. So all the niacin is gone. Even if you mm-hmm. did nishtamalize it, it wouldn't matter because there's no niacin to make available in there, right? So it drives me crazy when we talk about pellagra being a problem of poor, dumb, stupid Southerners being too dumb to cook. That is not what happened. It's like literally telling people that they're responsible for the lead paint in lead paint exposure when you put it in their paint and you yeah. gave it to them as the only paint available like oh my god yeah it's like why are you eating the lead poisoned water you idiots right dudes i think this is also where a lot of the like industrial food makes people sick discourse actually comes from because they people were kind of aware that like it had something to do with long distance corn right so i'm growing up as like my mom grew, grew up in appalachia right so she's like if you gotta buy grits make sure you get the stone ground ones and I was like, why, mom? And she's like, because they have more nutrients. If you go down to the south, you go to a grocery store, or like a country store or something to pick up grits today, you'll see advertisements that say grits, stone ground. It'll say right there on the front. So I just assumed that it was like calcium and like, I don't know, manganese or whatever from the stone kind of busting out. From, no. from the actual grinding plates. No, it was probably an anti pellagra thing because like stone ground is not from the big Midwestern mills with a degerminating technology. It's a local mill. Mm-hmm. Um that's what that was. I'm still getting raised with like anti-pelagra folk remedies is like how deep an impact this thing made on the culture. Well, and, and isn't it also fascinating this chain of information, right? Because mm-hmm. again, like people did identify it. This degermination process is not good for us. Like people are getting sick mm-hmm. and they figured out it was their food. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but could they, could they affect the entirety of the system, right? Yeah. Here we are. We have no consumer protection laws, you mm-hmm. know, like they were selling irradiated water in upstate New York at this time, like just to be clear. And if you can't affect the system, what can you do? Well, you can protect yourself and you can protect your family and you can come up with alternate supply chains for your own food processes most of the time, right? If you can. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you had the ability to decide which corn you were buying, buy stone ground. But if you're living on a plantation and you have to take whatever the landowner gives you, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So drives me crazy that we're like consumer, like consumer choice is a thing we were already pumping during the plague era to blame poor people for being sick. And then, you know, we also kind of have this techno narrative of like, oh, it's the advanced food that did it. Well, it's not that they were eating milled corn. It's that they weren't eating anything else. Right. 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 So any way you slice it, this is a poverty problem, right? Mm-hmm. We've developed this whole stack of excuses. We've got Southerners are too dumb, like these poor, these poor dumb trash, too dumb to cook. We've got the technology did it to us. Mm-hmm. We've got this whole stack of excuses so that we don't have to go, the poverty is doing this to, the, to people. We don't have to can, take. Can I just like also for a second, right? When we talked about the narrative of small family farms, mm-hmm. right? We're talking the clearly small family farms were not the thing like sharecropping was the thing but the industrialized agriculture processes that we're talking about today 20 billion dollars today would also be an incredible thing for an agricultural 
conglomerate to or a whole state, right, to produce in terms of a specific crop. The farming technology then with this labor source was comparable to what we are doing now. Like the industrialization process didn't, I mean, I'm sure that there are radical changes that happened in the industrialization process. Mm -hmm. But when I'm talking about like scale, it just seems like the scale is the same. Yeah, it was already very large scale. And right. all the industrialization that we're doing, like, again, this is another thing that makes me crazy is we say like, oh, it's large scale agriculture. I'm like, you know what a plantation is? They're, they're rather large in scale. The industrialization that we've done is to keep things at more or less the same scale with fewer people. Less labor. Uh -huh. It's the labor costs that we wanted mm -hmm. to cut out of that mm -hmm. process. Yeah. Mechanization and <laughs> improvements in transit were yeah. literally just about having to pay less people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Less. Yeah. And as someone who like has, I've done enough field hand labor in my life to not be like, oh, that's how, that's what we should get back to. I'm like, I feel like humans were made for more than that is like repetitive manual labor that destroys your body. I'm like, well, that'd be the nostalgia argument is like, no, let's go back to the land and, you know, intensive labor agriculture. That may not be the way. Yeah. You know, now hog lagoons uncovered hog lagoons in north carolina is also not the way right yeah, we can have multiple bad practices we're trying to get we, away from we can yes yeah. yes all yeah. the bad practices to get away from yeah so like i love automation it's my goal i'm like it's less is more when it comes to repetitive manual labor when you have the option to do manual labor tasks you know like the repetitive motion can be soothing but when that's your entire life and you can never get out it it hits different right yeah that's true so well yeah, we so can modernize i mean the concept of what modernization and agriculture means, mm -hmm. I think, has been co-opted by these very exploitative practices. Mm -hmm. But agriculture can change. It can grow. It can diminish in repetitive tasks. Mm -hmm. It can also be more effective per acreage, right? Mm -hmm. These things are all possible. Mm -hmm. But if you have to enslave people or bondage them in some way to mm -hmm. continue this practice, Let's just say that you are not doing it for the pastoral sense of camaraderie and tea on the porch, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the take home message about this for me to people is if we're going to make agriculture sustainable and good and just, it is not going to be by winding back the clock to something that we used to do. It is going to be by doing things we've never done before. <laughs> we're going to have Ooh. to come up with some new ideas because none of this stuff in the past is any good. That's great. I like that. New ideas. Mm -hmm. Forward. Onward. Yeah. So Pellagra ends in World War II because the federal government finally said, you have to put niacin back in the flour or back in the grits. Another way to fix it would have just been, how about we don't do poverty anymore and people can get some some eggs or some meat and dairy in their diet. Oh, that'd vegetables. be cool. Yeah, yeah, that helps. Yeah, that was an option. We did not take it. Hmm. So again, we kind of <laughs> go back to this. <laughs> Rationality, common sense solutions. What we just need is to uh, take a hard look at what our ancestors used to do. Mm -hmm. No, sorry. I mean, what we what we really what we really just said is, why don't we enrich things mm -hmm. and and add? I mean, like I'm down with enrichment. Don't get me wrong, right? Mm -hmm. March of Dimes mm -hmm. did for prenatal care. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's the neural tube defects, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did for that what the unions did to themselves with the weekend, right? It's kind of like put themselves out of business almost. I mean, March of Dimes is still around, and so mm -hmm. are unions, and good things for both. But when you put folic acid into people's foods, particularly cheap foods like cereals and breads and things that people can easily access at all levels of income and across mm -hmm. wide spectrums of population. Oh my goodness, neural tube defects kind of dropped precipitously. Yeah. If that? we had, if we had, you know, adding niacin back into foods, 
yay, one solution. Another solution might have been, how about we just don't do this kind of food system where you are literally making people dependent on things that make them sick? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, it's kind of wild to me that like a big part of like the sustainable foodie discourse is often like, oh, I've got these artificial nutrients in here and that's why people are sick. And I'm like, do you know what was happening before there were the artificial nutrients? Do do you know? It sounds like you don't know. Um, Mass starvation, at least 100,000 people died. And these were people that no one cared about. So you know, the actual number was bigger, right? Higher. And the reason we started supplementing was because World War II. We needed cannon fodder who could hold a gun. Right. Mm -hmm. Who didn't have dementia or Mm -hmm. diarrhea all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So it's like, we can't solve the poverty because then we won't have so much cannon fodder, but we do need the cannon fodder to be able to hold up firearms. So like that, that is the grisly truth behind why we finally kicked Pellegra. Rich people, I think, benefited from having the poor be sick and tired. I just say it again for the people in the back. Rich (laughs) people benefited from poor, from making poor people sick. Mm-hmm. And continue to make them well enough so they could benefit from their labor and potential deaths mm-hmm. in a situation of conflict. Yeah. Uh, we can just say it. That's okay. It's the yeah. truth. Yeah. There are a lot of public health disasters happening in the South at that time. There was pellagra. There was hookworm. There was yellow fever. There was cholera. You know, like we had a little bit of everything. So like, poor people were just not doing well in mm-hmm. the South. And also a lot of the, like goiters were a huge thing in the northern u.s because there was just this belt of like iodine deficient soil and so they called it the goiter belt everybody had goiters so we started iodizing the food up there because they were all eating local food that had no iodine and so they got (laughs) goiters so again like when you disaggregate this thing it wasn't the fact that the corn was coming from ohio it was the fact that when you degerminated it you took the niacin out and then it was basically forced into people as their sole source of food Mm -hmm. right so and then if you had people living in an iodine deficient area and you noticed that these gorders were happening there were other ways that you could have helped with that but iodized salt is a great thing for people to ingest on a regular basis right Mm -hmm. or seaweed we didn't think about seaweed in terms of this yeah anyway continue on Sarah. yeah i was just say like the minnesotans in the in 1900 were not really about the seaweed so you know (laughs) I don't know about that, though. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, like, let's think that through, though, because I had moss tea. There's moss soup. There's all sorts of interesting uh, things because they, uh, because Iceland deforested itself. Not really. Denmark deforested Iceland and then left them there, right? So they lost all their topsoil. They weren't able to farm. And then they ended up eating like fermented shark and things of that nature, whatever they could fish out of the sea, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the Norwegians too, with their starvation history later on in the 20th century, yeah. would have been down for some seaweed. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like it just nece- wasn't necessarily part of the uh, current local ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. And really quick. So the way this kind of, another thing I heard often, like an explanation for why the South grew so much cotton was, well, it's Tell the me. only, it was the only crop that people could farmers could get loans to grow Ooh, the finance system yeah and i was like "Mm, farmers the word farmers is doing a lot of work here because i think what you mean is that it's the only crop that sharecroppers could get loans to grow because the landowners Mm. also want anything else to get grown Mm -hmm. well but and also let's talk about the economic system right like how do we finance how do we finance agriculture Mm -hmm. you got to tell somebody you had a bank Mm-hmm. whether or not your crop's going to sell. And they're going to compare that to some sort of agricultural index. Mm-hmm. And guess who is sitting on the bank's shareholder team? All the wealthy people in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Well, like, 
But if the if cotton prices are low, that still doesn't make sense, right? It would make more sense to diversify. And and in mm-hmm. this time period, you had northern industrialists going down south to start pecan farms, peach farms, citrus farms. So it's not that there was no money available to grow other things. There was no money available to poor people to grow other things. Mm-hmm. That being said, I still think the indexes are interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Whether people could demonstrate that they could sell the crop for something. Oh, yeah. Like the banking system is definitely involved. I just find that blaming bankers is kind of like a go-to thing as an excuse for landowners' decisions. I'm like, y'all actually have agency. And I'd like to focus on that for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm down with you. I just like underwriting processes are interesting in terms of the bias Mm -hmm. that's inherent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Southern landowners, like they had associations, they had peers, neighbors, they had access to resources and they didn't have that to get out of cotton. That's, I hear you. I got you with that. Okay. The way like, oh, these poor farmers were like victims of the bankers and the merchants. I'm like, I don't think that was the narrative I was going with. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's just one I hear all the time. So I'm like, ah, (laughs) like when you are the wealthy landed gentry, blaming the bankers is like, y'all are sitting on the bank boards too. (laughs) Specifically, actually, you guys are specifically sitting on the bank boards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But if you're a sharecropper and you wanted to get your loan from some other place, you could not do that. Like the only way you could get any loan, even for like survival rations, there's no food stamps at the time. There's no social safety net. The only way to get a loan for food to live on was to promise to grow cotton and I'll give you a share of the crop. So kind of Absies. perpetual bonded situation there. Absolutely share of the crop. Yeah. So this, by the way, is why California grows all the vegetables. Because other than a few, yeah, other than a few northern industrialists who are like, I want a winter home that kind of pays for itself. So I'm going to start a little pecan farm or a little peach farm or a little citrus farm in Florida. Like, these were not really intended to be like big cash operations for the most part. It was kind of like, how do I get a winter home that pays for itself? Mm-hmm. So those are the folks, like, the only folks who are investing in anything different in southern agriculture. So you have like these northern cities that are really dependent on food imports. They can't grow produce in March so the South could have cleaned it up exporting mm-hmm. vegetables up north. Like you still have a little bit of a produce industry down here. But the South could have cleaned it up if they invested in produce. The South could have made a lot of money and built a lot of wealth over that time. But the landowners were too busy playing cotton games. And that's why all the produce comes from California. Interesting. Yeah. It was like literally easier to build railroads across the fucking continent in <laughs> California than it was to get cotton lords to change their business model. So, like, it's wild wow. to Wow. Yeah. I so think the, about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's wild because the discourse is about, like, oh, well, the, Calif- like, the weather's different in California. That's why. If it's the weather, then how come the Netherlands has a big produce industry? Such a good question. <laughs> you know, like, there, there's, certain, there's certain very specific crops that need a Mediterranean climate. But citrus, you can grow in Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, figs, you can grow in Florida. Instead of almonds, we could have had a nut industry based on pecans that went way back further mm-hmm. instead of waiting until like the year 2000 to have a, an almond industry in California. Right. So this is the, the Jim Crow cotton era has a huge impact on how the entire U S national food system worked out because these fuckheads were too busy clogging up the land with cotton specifically to starve people and keep them subjugated to grow vegetables. Mm-hmm. The problem with produce is you can make a decent amount of money on a small amount of land. Right. And so if your economy is based on doling out land to white people to support a certain kind of like political and economic ecosystem, allowing people to make money growing vegetables on small plots of land upends that whole thing. It allows for upward mobility on small plots of land. We can't let that happen. 
Oh no. Oh, yeah. Danger. Danger. Will Robinson. Yeah. So it's funny to me when people talk about like, oh, like how come the USDA just values all these big field crops over fruits and vegetables and they call them specialty crops. I'm like, it's racism. It's literally because of racism. <laughs> you are sitting on the point right yeah. there. Why are we using the infrastructure of government to support this particular type of agriculture? Mm -hmm. Why? Because it supports a social economic construct that mm -hmm. benefits a lot of wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the South could have a kick in produce industry, especially with, you know, like a hundred years of advances that we've had in, in crop protection and crop health. It's not because of weather. And folks who work in California will tell you that they're like, yeah, our weather's great and all, but like, really it's the people and like the infrastructure that we have here to grow produce because we've just invested in it here. Mm -hmm. The South could have done that and they just never did. So that's one of the reasons the South is so broke today. We are dedicated to growing low revenue crops to keep people poor. So. Ow. Yeah. 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 Last thing about Pellagra, just found some like World War One draft records. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of a list of like, you know, this is the rates of tuberculosis and measles and scoliosis and Pellagra amongst drafted men, right? The highest rates of Pellagra, it's like in the South, like if you are black, you're more likely to have Pellagra. If you're a woman, you have more likely to have Pellagra. So black women had an especially hard time. Mm -hmm. Yep. But the highest rates of Pellagra in the U.S. were not in the South. Where were they? They were in a population listed as Indian, sparsely settled. <gasps> no. Yeah. Yeah. So this is folks who, like, it was hard to tell, like, what area of the country these folks are coming from, the way the stats were divided up. But if you look mm -hmm. at it, it looks like most of them were coming from Oklahoma, which mm -hmm. is, like, reservation country, where a lot of communities who had farmed corn knew what nationalization was, were forced migrated over. Cherokee, mm -hmm. Choctaw. Mm -hmm. A whole bunch of communities from all over the eastern U.S. were forced into Oklahoma. Not the greatest farmland in the world. And so they were dependent on U.S. commodity imports. So, like, that's kind of where fry bread comes from. Mm -hmm. It was like, we're giving you wheat flour and lard. Good luck, you know? Yeah. The buffalo are hunted nearly to extinction, so you don't have that as a protein source. There's really just not a lot to eat there besides government handouts. And the kids are being kidnapped from home and sent to residential schools. Where, where they're being starved to death. Where the diet was cornmeal, fatback, and molasses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for the same reasons that sharecroppers were getting cornbread, sorry, cornmeal, fatback, and molasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Mohawk Institute, like the kids who went there called it the mush hole because they were just getting corn mush all the time. Like that was a big feature of the diet. So again, this whole thing about people got plagra because they were dumb and didn't know how to nishtamalize. Shut the fuck up. The poverty at this time was not just about poverty. It was, you're basically being kept in captivity. Sharecroppers are being kept captive and fed rations basically chosen by their captors. Uh, kids in residential schools, same things. A lot of prison inmates and asylum inmates were getting pellagra for the same reason. So this is why there was so much energy put into like coming up with this whole list of excuses to blame poor people for having pellagra because it was definitely rich people's fault. They were the ones choosing the rations. They were keeping people in captivity and feeding them shit. And making them sick. I think captivity is is a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just wild. It's like, you know, kind of coming from like a poor Southern background on this one side of the family. My family's story and indigenous people's story, very different stories. And yet we have this big intersection in that forced hunger and plague played a huge role in both of our lives. And in some ways, there's a lot of similarities to our story. And there's a lot of overlap and shared grief and shared cause there. Um you know, like, obviously, despite all the forced labor, we never had, like, our families taken apart in that way. So they're, they're not the same story at all. But we also have a lot of overlap and a lot of shared interest. And when we talk about food systems, 
you know, I think this is something a lot of Americans have in common is this history. Yeah. Yeah. The intersectional nature of cruelty, mm-hmm. you know, or not the intersectional nature of fruity, but the, the intersection. Nah. Cruelty is an intersectional experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like it's kind of the same people responsible for the whole thing. You have right. wealthier white landowners kind of seizing all the land and seizing those natural resources mm-hmm. and kind of using that authority that you get from that to keep other people dependent on you, hungry and starving, you know, and use that authority in the worst possible way. Correct. So those bastards. Yeah. I think that's probably enough for today. My Should voice we stop getting... here? <laughs> <laughs> My voice is getting shredded, but I'm like, so the next thing we're going to get into is like, okay, so the Midwest is making fuck tons of money off of this from like 1900 through 1920, like just money hand over fist. And that actually kicked off a lot of like really messed up things in American history. What's happening to housing markets now mm-hmm. happened to farmland 1900 through 1920 because of so much money pouring into agriculture. Oh, it's a farmland gold rush. Yep. And that's why automation started was because farmers were making so much money and they're like, I'm going to use this to buy machines to replace my workers. What's the number one thing we hear right now is like, farmers need to make more money. I'm like, well, when they were making more money, they made bad choices with it. So is that really what we should do? (laughs) (laughs) That's how we got there is when they made more money. I thought you were going with nobody wants to work anymore. That's what we hear now. Oh, no, 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 no. When farmers make more money, they are bastards with it. So yeah. That's a thing maybe we should keep in mind if we think the solution is make sure farmers make more money. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Let's look at what we bought with that money before. Mm-hmm. That's how we got here. Kicked off the Dust Bowl. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And kicked Followed off- closely by the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Yeah. I'm joking. That was a sports, <laughs> that was a sports joke. I don't really understand sportsing, but I'm just going to make a joke about it. Sport bowls. But yes, Dust Bowl, bad. Very bad. So bad. Uh, it was kicked off by this era of prosperity. A century of just god-awful farm policy came from this one 20-year high period. Interesting. 